BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Chapter 31 of Bleak House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 31 Nurse and Patient. I had not been at home again many days when one evening I went upstairs into my own room to take a peep over Charlie's shoulder and see how she was getting on with her copy book. Writing was a trying business to Charlie, who seemed to have no natural power over a pen but in whose hand every pen appeared to become perversely animated, and to go wrong and crooked, and to stop and splash and sidle into corners like a saddle-donkey. It was very odd to see what old letters Charlie's young hand had made, they so wrinkled and shrivelled and tottering, it so plump and round. Yet Charlie was uncommonly expert at other things, and had as nimble little fingers as I ever watched. "'Well, Charlie,' said I, looking over a copy of the letter O, in which it was represented as square, triangular, pear-shape, and collapsed in all kinds of ways. We are improving. If we only get to make it round, we shall be perfect, Charlie. Then I made one, and Charlie made one, and the pen wouldn't join Charlie's neatly, but twisted it up into a knot. Never mind, Charlie, we shall do it in time. Charlie laid down her pen, the copy being finished, opened and shut her cramped little hand, looked gravely at the page, half in pride and half in doubt, and got up and dropped me a curtsy. "'Thank you, miss. If you please, miss, did you know a poor person of the name of Jenny?' "'A brickmaker's wife, Charlie, yes.' She came and spoke to me when I was out a little while ago, and said you knew her, miss.' She asked me if I wasn't the young lady's little maid, meaning you for the young lady, miss, and I said yes, miss. I thought she had left this neighbourhood altogether, Charlie. Oh, so she had, miss, but she's come back again to where she used to live, she and Liz. Did you know another poor person of the name of Liz, miss? I think I do, Charlie, though not by name. That's what she said returned Charlie. They have both come back, miss, and have been tramping high and low. Tramping high and low, have they, Charlie? Yes, miss. If Charlie could have only have made the letters in her copy as round as the eyes with which she looked into my face, they would have been excellent. 
and this poor person came about the house three or four days hoping to get a glimpse of you miss all she wanted she said but you were away that was when she saw me she saw me a-going about miss said charley with a short laugh of the greatest delight and pride and she thought i looked like your maid did she though really charley oh, yes miss said charley really and truly and charley with another short laugh of the purest glee made her eyes very round again and looked as serious as became my maid i was never tired of seeing charley in the full enjoyment of that great dignity standing before me with her youthful face and figure and her steady manner and her childish exultation breaking through it now and then in the pleasantest way and where did you see her charley said i my little maid's countenance fell as she replied by the doctor's shop miss for charley wore her black frock yet i asked if the brickmaker's wife were ill but charley said no it was some one else some one in her cottage who had tramped down to st albans and was tramping he didn't know where a poor boy charley said no father no mother no any one like as tom might have been miss if emma and me had died after father said charley her round eyes filling with tears and she was getting medicine for him charley she said miss returned charley how that he had once done as much for her my little maid's face was so eager and her quiet hands were folded so closely in one another as she stood looking at me that i had no great difficulty in reading her thoughts well charley said i it appears to me that you and i can do no better than go round to jenny's and see what's the matter the alacrity with which charley brought my bonnet and veil and having dressed me quaintly pinned herself into a warm shawl and made herself look like a little old woman sufficiently expressed her readiness so charley and i without saying anything to any one went out it was a cold wild night and the trees shuddered in the wind the rain had been thick and heavy all day and with little intermission for many days none was falling just then however the sky had partly cleared but was very gloomy even above us where a few stars were shining in the north and northwest where the sun had set three hours before there was a pale dead light both beautiful and awful and into it long sullen lines of cloud waved up like a sea stricken immovable as it was heaving towards london a lurid glare overhung the whole dark waste and the contrast between these two lights and the fancy which the redder light engendered of an unearthly pyre gleaming on all the unseen buildings of the city and on all the faces of its many thousands of wandering inhabitants was as solemn as might be i had no thought that night none i am quite sure of what was soon to happen to me but i have always remembered since that when we had stopped at the garden gate to look up at the sky and when we went upon our way i had for a moment an undefinable impression of myself as being something different from what i then was i know it was then and there that i had it 
I have ever since connected the feeling with that spot and time, and with everything associated with that spot and time, to the distant voices in the town, the barking of a dog, and the sound of wheels coming down the miry hill. It was Saturday night, and most of the people belonging to the place where we were going were drinking elsewhere. We found it quieter than I had previously seen it, though quite as miserable. The kilns were burning, and a stifling vapour set towards us with a pale blue glare. We came to the cottage where there was a feeble candle in the patched window. We tapped at the door and went in. The mother of the little child who had died was sitting in a chair on one side of the poor fire by the bed, and opposite to her a wretched boy, supported by the chimney-piece, was cowering on the floor. He held under his arm, like a little bundle, a fragment of fur cap, and as he tried to warm himself he shook until the crazy door and window shook. The place was closer than before, and had an unhealthy and a very peculiar smell. I had not lifted my veil when I first spoke to the woman, which was at the moment of our going in. The boy staggered up instantly, and stared at me with a remarkable expression of surprise and terror. His action was so quick, and my being the cause of it was so evident, that I stood still, instead of advancing nearer. "'I won't go no more to the burying ground,' muttered the boy. "'I ain't a-going there, so I tell you.' I lifted my veil and spoke to the woman. She said to me in a low voice, "'Don't mind him, ma'am. He'll soon come back to his head,' and said to him, "'Joe, Joe, what's the matter?' "'I know what she's come for,' cried the boy. "'Who?' "'The lady there. She's come to get me to go along with her to the burying ground. I won't go to the burying ground. I don't like the name on it. She might go a-burying me.' His shivering came on again and as he leaned against the wall, he shook the hovel. "'He has been talking off and on about such like all day, ma'am,' said Jenny softly. "'Why, how you stare! This is my lady, Joe.' "'Is it?' returned the boy doubtfully, and surveying me with his arm held out above his burning eyes. "'She looks to me the t'other one. It ain't the bonnet.' nor yet it ain't the gowned but she looks to me the t'other one my little charley with her premature experience of illness and trouble had pulled off her bonnet and shawl and now went quietly up to him with a chair and sat him down in it like an old sick nurse except that no such attendant could have shown him charley's youthful face which seemed to engage his confidence i say said the boy you tell me ain't the lady the t'other lady charley shook her head as she methodically drew his rags about him and made him as warm as she could oh the boy muttered then i suppose she ain't i came to see if i could do you any good said i what is the matter with you i'm up in froze returned the boy hoarsely with his haggard gaze wandering about me and then burnt up and then 
froze, and then burnt up, ever so many times in an hour, and my head's all sleepy, and all a-going mad-like, and I'm so dry, and my bones isn't off so much bones as pain. "'When did he come here?' I asked the woman. "'This morning, ma'am. I found him at the corner of the town. I had known him up in London yonder, hadn't I, Joe?' "'Tom, all alone's,' the boy replied. Whenever he fixed his attention or his eyes, it was only for a very little while. He soon began to droop his head again, and roll it heavily, and speak as if he were half awake. "'When did he come from London?' I asked. "'I come from London yesterday,' said the boy himself, now flushed and hot. "'I'm a-going somewheres.' "'Where is he going?' I asked. "'Somewheres,' repeated the boy in a louder tone. "'I have been moved on and moved on.' more nor ever i was afore since the t'other one give me the sovereign mrs snagsby she's always a watching and a driving of me what have i done to her and they're all a watching and a driving of me every one of em's doing of it from the time when i don't get up to the time and I don't go to bed, and I'm a-going somewheres. That's where I'm a-going. She told me, down in Tom All Alone's, as she came from Stolbun's, and so I took the Stolbun's road. It's as good as another. He always concluded by addressing Charlie. What is to be done with him? said I taking the woman aside. He could not travel in this state, even if he had a purpose, and knew where he was going. "'I know no more, ma'am, than the dead,' she replied, glancing compassionately at him. "'Perhaps the dead know better, if they could only tell us. I've kept him here all day for pity's sake, and I've given him broth and physic, and Liz has gone to try if any one will take him in. Here's my pretty in the bed. Her child. But I call it mine. But I can't keep him long, for if my husband was to come home and find him here, he'd be rough in putting him out, and might do him a hurt. Hark! Here comes Liz back. The other woman came hurriedly in as she spoke, and the boy got up with a half-obscured sense that he was expected to be going. When the little child awoke, and when and how Charlie got at it, took it out of bed, and began to walk about hushing it, I don't know. There she was, doing all this in a quiet motherly manner, as if she were living in Mrs. Blinder's attic, with Tom and Emma again. The friend had been here and there, and had been played about from hand to hand, and had come back as she went. At first it was too early for the boy to be received into the proper refuge, and at last it was too late. One official sent her to another, and the other sent her back again to the first, and so backward and forward, until it appeared to me as if both must have been appointed for their skill in evading their duties instead of performing them. And now, after all, 
she said, breathing quickly, for she had been running, and was frightened, too. Oh, Jenny, your master's on the road home, and mine's not far behind, and the Lord help the boy, for we can do no more for him. They put a few halfpence together, and hurried them into his hand, and so, in an oblivious, half-thankful, half-insensible way, he shuffled out of the house. "'Give me the child, my dear,' said its mother to Charlie, "'and thank you kindly, too. Jenny, woman, dear, good-night. Young lady, if my master don't fall out with me, I'll look down by the kiln by and by, where the boy will be most like, and again in the morning.' She hurried off, and presently we passed her, hushing and singing to her child at her own door, and looking anxiously along the road for her drunken husband. I was afraid of staying then to speak to either woman, lest I should bring her into trouble. But I said to Charlie that we must not leave the boy to die. Charlie, who knew what to do much better than I did, and whose quickness equalled her presence of mind, glided on before me, and presently we came up with Joe, just short of the brick kiln. I think he must have begun his journey with some small bundle under his arm, and must have had it stolen or lost. For he still carried his wretched fragment of fur cap like a bundle, though he went bareheaded through the rain, which now fell fast. He stopped when we called to him, and again showed a dread of me when I came up, standing with his lustrous eyes fixed upon me, and even arresting in his shivering fit. I asked him to come with us, and we would take care that he had some shelter for the night. "'I don't want no shelter,' he said. "'I can lay amongst the warm bricks.' "'But don't you know that people die there?' replied Charlie. "'They dies everywheres,' said the boy. "'They dies in their lodgings. She knows where. I showed her and they dies down in tom all alone's in heaps they dies more than they lives according to what i see then he hoarsely whispered charlie if she ain't the t'other one she ain't the foreigner is there three of them then charlie looked at me a little frightened i felt half frightened at myself when the boy glared on me so but he turned and followed when I beckoned to him, and finding that he acknowledged that influence in me, I led the way straight home. It was not far, only at the summit of the hill. We passed but one man. I doubted if we should have got home without assistance. The boy's steps were so uncertain and tremulous. He made no complaint, however, and was strangely unconcerned about himself, if I may say so strange a thing. Leaving him in the hall for a moment, shrung into the corner of the window-seat, and staring with an indifference that scarcely could be called wonder at the comfort and brightness about him, I went into the drawing-room to speak to my guardian. There I found Mr. Skimpole, who had come down by the coach, as he frequently did without notice, and never bringing any clothes with him, but always borrowing everything he wanted. They came out with me directly to look at the boy. The servants had gathered in the hall, too, and he shivered in the window-seat with Charlie standing by him, like some wounded animal that had been found in a ditch. "'This is a sorrowful case,' said my guardian, 
after asking him a question or two, and touching him, and examining his eyes. "'What do you say, Harold?' "'You had better turn him out,' said Mr. Skimpole. "'What do you mean?' inquired my guardian almost sternly. "'My dear Jarndyce,' said Mr. Skimpole, "'you know what I am. I am a child. Be cross to me, if I deserve it. But I've a constitutional objection to this sort of thing I always had when I was a medical man. He's not safe, you know. There's a very bad sort of fever about him.' Mr. Skimpole had retreated from the hall to the drawing-room again, and said this in his airy way, seated on the music-stool, as we stood by. "'You'll say it's uh, childish?' observed Mrs. Skimpole, looking gaily at us. "'Well, I dare say it may be. But I am a child, and I never pretend to be anything else. If you put him out in the road, you only put him where he was before. He will be no worse off than he was, you know. Even make him better off, if you like. Give him sixpence, or five shillings, or five pound ten. You are arithmeticians.' and I am not, and get rid of him.' "'And what is he to do then?' asked my guardian. "'Upon my life,' said Mr. Skimpole, shrugging his shoulders with his engaging smile, "'I have not the least idea what he is to do then, but I have no doubt he'll do it.' "'Now is it not a horrible reflection?' said my guardian, to whom I had hastily explained the unavailing efforts of the two women. "'Is it not a horrible reflection—walking up and down and rumpling his hair—that if this wretched creature were a convicted prisoner, his hospital would be wide open to him, and he would be as well taken care of as any sick boy in the kingdom?' "'My dear Jarndyce,' returned Mr. Skimpole, you pardon the simplicity of the question, coming as it does from a creature who is perfectly simple in worldly matters. But why isn't he a prisoner, then?" My guardian stopped, and looked at him with a whimsical mixture of amusement and indignation in his face. "'Our young friend is not to be suspected of any delicacy, I should imagine,' said Mr. Skimpole, unabashed and candid. "'It seems to me that it would be wiser—' as well as in a certain kind of way more respectable, if he showed some misdirected energy that got him into prison. There would be more of an adventurous spirit in it, and consequently more of a certain sort of poetry." "'I believe,' returned my guardian, resuming his uneasy walk, "'that there is not such another child on earth as yourself.' "'Do you really?' said Mr. Skimpole. I dare say, but I confess I don't see why our young friend, in his degree, should not seek to invest himself with such poetry as is open to him. He is no doubt born with an appetite. Probably, when he is in a safer state of health, he has an excellent appetite. Very well. At our young friend's natural dinner-hour, most likely about noon, our young friend says in effect to society, I am hungry. Will you have the goodness to produce your spoon and feed me? 
society which has taken upon itself the general arrangement of the whole system of spoons and professes to have a spoon for our young friend does not produce that spoon and our young friend therefore says you really must excuse me if i seize it now this appears to me a case of misdirected energy which has a certain amount of reason in it and a certain amount of romance and i don't know but what i should be more interested in our young friend as an illustration of such a case than merely as a poor vagabond which any one can be in the meantime i ventured to observe he is getting worse in the meantime said mr skimpole cheerfully as miss summerson with her practical good sense observes he is getting worse therefore i recommend your turning him out before he gets still worse the amiable face with which he said it i think i shall never forget of course little woman observed my guardian turning to me i can ensure his admission into the proper place by merely going there to enforce it though it's a bad state of things when in his condition that is necessary but it's growing late and it's a very bad night and the boy is worn out already there is a bed in the wholesome loft room by the stable we had better keep him there till morning when he can be wrapped up and removed we'll do that oh said mr skimpole with his hands upon the keys of the piano as he moved away are you going back to our young friend yes said my guardian how i envy you your constitution jarndyce returned mr skimpole with playful admiration you don't mind these things neither does miss summerson you are ready at all times to go anywhere and do anything such is will i have no will at all and no won't simply can't you can't recommend anything for the boy i suppose said my guardian looking back over his shoulder half angrily only half angrily for he never seemed to consider mr skimpole an accountable being my dear jarndyce i observe a bottle of cooling medicine in his pocket and it's impossible for him to do better than take it you can tell them to sprinkle a little vinegar about the place where he sleeps and to keep it moderately cool and him moderately warm but it is mere impertinence in me to offer any recommendation miss summerson has such a knowledge of detail and such a capacity for the administration of detail that she knows all about it we went back into the hall and explained to joe what we proposed to do which charlie explained to him again and which he received with the languid unconcern i had already noticed wearily looking on at what was done as if it were for somebody else the servants compassionating his miserable state and being very anxious to help we soon got the loft-room ready and some of the men about the house carried him across the wet yard well wrapped up it was pleasant to observe how kind they were to him and how there appeared to be a general impression among them that frequently calling him old chap was likely to revive his spirits charlie directed the operations and went to and fro between the loft-room and the house with such little stimulants and comforts as we thought it safe to give him my guardian himself saw him before he was left for the night and reported to me when he returned to the growlery to write a letter on the boy's behalf which a messenger was charged to deliver at daylight in the morning that he seemed easier and inclined to sleep they had fastened his door on the outside he said 
in case of his being delirious, but had so arranged that he could not make any noise without being heard. Ada being in our room with a cold, Mr. Skimpole was left alone all this time, and entertained himself by playing snatches of pathetic airs, and sometimes singing to them, as we heard at a distance, with great expression and feeling. When we rejoined him in the drawing-room, he said he would give us a little ballad which had come into his head, apropos of our young friend, and he sang one about a peasant boy. Thrown on the wide world, doomed to wander and roam, bereft of his parents, bereft of a home. Quite exquisitely. It was a song that always made him cry, he told us. He was extremely gay all the rest of the evening, for he absolutely chirped. Those were his delighted words, when he thought by what a happy talent for business he was surrounded. He gave us, in his glass of Nagus, "'Better health to our young friend,' and supposed, and gaily pursued the case, of his being reserved, like Whittington, to become Lord Mayor of London. In that event, no doubt, he would establish the Jarndyce Institution, and the Somerson Almshouses, and a little annual corporation pilgrimage to St. Albans. He had no doubt, he said, that our young friend was an excellent boy in his way, but his way was not the Harold Skimpole way. What Harold Skimpole was, Harold Skimpole had found himself, to his considerable surprise, when he first made his own acquaintance. He had accepted himself with all his failings, and had thought it sound philosophy to make the best of the bargain, and he hoped we would do the same. Charlie's last report was that the boy was quiet. I could see from my window the lantern they had left him burning quietly and I went to bed very happy to think that he was sheltered. There was more movement and more talking than usual a little before daybreak, and it awoke me. As I was dressing, I looked out of my window and asked one of our men, who had been among the active sympathizers last night, whether there was anything wrong about the house. The lantern was still burning in the loft window. "'It's the boy, miss,' said he. "'Is he worse?' I inquired. "'Gone, miss.' dead dead miss no gone clean off at what time of the night he had gone or how or why it seemed hopeless ever to divine the door remaining as it had been left and the lantern standing in the window it could only be supposed that he had got out by a trap in the floor which communicated with an empty cart-house below but he had shut it down again if that were so and it looked as if it had not been raised nothing of any kind was missing on this fact being clearly ascertained we all yielded to the painful belief that delirium had come upon him in the night and that allured by some imaginary object or pursued by some imaginary horror he had strayed away in that worse than helpless state all of us that is to say but mr skimpole who repeatedly suggested in his usual easy light style that it had occurred to our young friend that he was not a safe inmate having a bad kind of fever upon him and that he had with great natural politeness taken himself off every possible inquiry was made and every place was searched the brick kilns were examined the cottages were visited the two women were particularly questioned but they knew nothing of him and nobody could doubt that their wonder was genuine the weather had for some time been too wet and the night itself had been too wet to admit of any tracing by footsteps. 
hedge and ditch and wall and rick and stack were examined by our men for a long distance round lest the boy should be lying in such a place insensible or dead but nothing was seen to indicate that he had ever been near from the time when he was left in the loft-room he vanished the search continued for five days i do not mean that it ceased even then but that my attention was then diverted into a current very memorable to me as charlie was at her writing again in my room in the evening and as i sat opposite to her at work i felt the table tremble looking up i saw my little maid shivering from head to foot charlie said i are you so cold i think i am miss she replied i don't know what it is i can't hold myself still i felt so yesterday at about this same time miss don't be uneasy i think i'm ill i heard ada's voice outside and i hurried to the door of communication between my room and our pretty sitting-room and locked it just in time for she tapped at it while my hand was yet upon the key ada called to me to let her in but i said not now my dearest go away there's nothing the matter i will come to you presently ah it was a long long time before my darling girl and i were companions again charlie fell ill in twelve hours she was very ill i moved her to my room and laid her in my bed and sat down quietly to nurse her i told my guardian all about it and why i felt it was necessary that i should seclude myself and my reason for not seeing my darling above all at first she came very often to the door and called to me and even reproached me with sobs and tears but i wrote her a long letter saying that she made me anxious and unhappy and imploring her as she loved me and wished my mind to be at peace to come no nearer than the garden after that she came beneath the window even oftener than she had come to the door and if i had learnt to love her dear sweet voice before when we were hardly ever apart how did i learn to love it then when i stood behind the window-curtain listening and replying but not so much as looking out how did i learn to love it afterwards when the harder time came they put a bed for me in our sitting-room and by keeping the door wide open i turned the two rooms into one now that ada had vacated that part of the house and kept them always fresh and airy there was not a servant in or about the house but was so good that they would almost gladly have come to me at any hour of the day or night without the least fear or unwillingness but i thought it best to choose one worthy woman who was never to see ada and whom i could trust to come and go with all precaution through her means i got out to take air with my guardian when there was no fear of meeting ada and wanted for nothing in the way of attendance any more than in any other respect and thus poor charlie sickened and grew worse and fell into heavy danger of death and lay severely ill for many a long round of day and night so patient she was so uncomplaining and inspired by such a gentle fortitude that very often as i sat by charlie holding her head in my arms repose would come to her so when it would come to her in no other attitude i silently prayed to our father in heaven that i might not forget the lesson which this little sister taught me i was very sorrowful to think that charlie's pretty looks would change and be disfigured even if she recovered she was such a child with her dimpled face 
but that thought was, for the greater part, lost in her greater peril. When she was at the worst, and her mind rambled again to the cares of her father's sick-bed and the little children, she still knew me so far as that she would be quiet in my arms, when she could lie quiet nowhere else, and murmur out the wanderings of her mind less restlessly. At those times I used to think, how should I ever tell the two remaining babies, that the baby who had learned of her faithful heart to be a mother, to them in their need, was dead? There were other times when Charlie knew me well, and talked to me, telling me that she sent her love to Tom and Emma, and that she was sure Tom would grow up to be a good man. At those times Charlie would speak to me of what she had read to her father, as well as she could, to comfort him, of that young man carried out to be buried, who was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, of the ruler's daughter raised up by the gracious hand upon her bed of death. And Charlie told me that when her father died, she had kneeled down, and prayed in her first sorrow, that he likewise might be raised up, and given back to his poor children, and that if she should never get better, and should die too, she thought it likely that it might come into Tom's mind to offer the same prayer for her. Then would I show Tom how these people of old days had been brought back to life on earth, only that we might know our hope to be restored to heaven. But of all the various times there were in Charlie's illness, there was not one when she lost the gentle qualities I have spoken of, and there were many, many when I thought in the night of the last high belief in the watchful angel, and the last higher trust in God, on the part of her poor despised father and Charlie did not die. She flutteringly, and slowly, turned the dangerous point, after long lingering there, and then began to mend. The hope that never had been given, from the first, of Charlie being in outward appearance Charlie any more, soon began to be encouraged, and even that prospered, and I saw her growing into her old childish likeness again. It was a great morning when I could tell Ada all this, as she stood out in the garden, and it was a great evening when Charlie and I at last took tea together in the room. But on that same evening I felt that I was stricken cold. Happily for both of us, it was not until Charlie was safe in bed again, and placidly asleep, that I began to think the contagion of her illness was upon me. I had been able easily to hide what I felt at tea-time. But I was past that already now, and I knew that I was rapidly following in Charlie's steps. I was well enough, however, to be up early in the morning, and to return my darling's cheerful blessing from the garden, and to talk with her as long as usual. But I was not free from an impression that I had been walking about the two rooms in the night, a little beside myself, though knowing where I was, and I felt confused at times, with a curious sense of fullness as if I were becoming too large altogether. In the evening I was so much worse that I resolved to prepare Charlie, with which view I said, "'You're getting quite strong, Charlie, are you not?' "'Oh, quite,' said Charlie. "'Strong enough to be told a secret, I think, Charlie.' "'Oh, quite strong enough for that, miss,' cried Charlie. But Charlie's face fell in the height of her delight for she saw the secret in my face, and she came out of the great chair, and fell upon my bosom, and said, "'Oh, miss, it's my doing, it's my doing,' and a great deal more 
out of the fullness of her grateful heart. "'Now, Charlie,' said I, after letting her go on for a little while, "'if I am to be ill, my great trust, humanly speaking, is in you, and unless you are as quiet and composed for me as you always were for yourself, you can never fulfil it, Charlie.' "'If you let me cry a little longer, miss,' said Charlie, "'oh, my dear, my dear, if only let me cry a little longer, oh, my dear!' How affectionately and devotedly she poured this out as she clung to my neck, I never can remember without tears. "'I'll be good.' So I let Charlie cry a little longer, and it did us both good. "'Trust in me now, if you please, miss,' said Charlie quietly. "'I am listening to everything you say.' "'It's very little at present, Charlie. "'I shall tell your doctor to-night that I don't think I'm well, "'and that you are going to nurse me.' "'For that the poor child thanked me with her whole heart. "'And in the morning, when you hear Miss Ada in the garden, "'if I should not be quite able to go to the window-curtain as usual, "'do you go, Charlie, and say I am asleep, "'that I have rather tired myself, and I'm asleep. "'At all times keep the room as I have kept it, Charlie.' and let no one come. Charlie promised, and I lay down, for I was very heavy. I saw the doctor that night, and asked the favour of him that I wished to ask relative to his saying nothing of my illness in the house as yet. I have a very indistinct remembrance of that night melting into day, and of day melting into night again. But I was just able, on the first morning, to get to the window and speak to my darling. On the second morning I heard her dear voice, oh, how dear now, outside, and I asked Charlie, with some difficulty, speech being painful to me, to go and say I was asleep. I heard her answer softly, don't disturb her, Charlie, for the world. How does my own pride look, Charlie? I inquired. Disappointed, miss said Charlie, peeping through the curtain. "'But I know she's very beautiful this morning.' "'She is indeed, miss,' answered Charlie, peeping, still looking up at the window. With her clear blue eyes, God bless them, always loveliest when raised like that. I called Charlie to me, and gave her her last charge. "'Now, Charlie, when she knows I am ill,' She will try to make her way into the room. Keep her out, Charlie, if you love me truly, to the last. Charlie, if you let her in but once, only to look upon me for one moment as I lie here, I shall die. I never will. I never will. She promised me. I believe it, my dear Charlie. "'And now come and sit beside me for a little while, "'and touch me with your hand, "'for I cannot see you, Charlie. "'I am blind.'" End of chapter 31「Chapter 32 of Bleak House this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 
Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Two The Appointed Time. It is night in Lincoln's Inn, perplexed and troublous valley of the shadow of the law, where suitors generally find but little day, and fat candles are snuffed out in offices, and clerks have rattled down the crazy wooden stairs and dispersed. The bell that rings at nine o'clock has ceased its doleful clangour about nothing. The gates are shut, and the night-porter, a solemn warder, with a mighty power of sleep, keeps guard in his lodge. From tiers of staircase windows, clogged lamps like the eyes of equity, bleared Argus, with a fathomless pocket for every eye and an eye upon it, dimly blink at the stars. In dirty upper casements, here and there, hazy little patches of candlelight reveal where some wise draughtsman and conveyancer yet toils for the entanglement of real estate, in meshes of sheepskin, in the average ratio of about a dozen of sheep to an acre of land. Over which bee-like industry these benefactors of their species linger yet, though officers be passed, that they may give, for every day, some good account at last. In the neighbouring court, where the Lord Chancellor of the Rag and Bottle Shop dwells, there is a general tendency towards beer and supper. Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Perkins, whose respective sons, engaged with a circle of acquaintance in the game of hide-and-seek, have been lying in ambush about the byways of Chancery Lane for some hours, and scouring the plain of the same thoroughfare to the confusion of passengers. Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Perkins have but now exchanged congratulations on the children being abed and they still linger on a doorstep over a few parting words. Mr. Crook and his lodger, and the fact of Mr. Crook's being continually in liquor, and the testamentary prospects of the young man are, as usual, the staple of their conversation. But they have something to say likewise of the harmonic meeting at the Soul's Arms, where the sound of the piano through the partly opened windows jingles out into the court, and where little swills, after keeping the lovers of harmony in a roar like a very Yorick, may now be heard taking the gruff line in a concerted piece, and sentimentally adjuring his friends and patrons to listen, listen, listen to the water fall. Mrs. Perkins and Mrs. Piper compare opinions on the subject of the young lady of professional celebrity, who assists at the harmonic meetings, and who has a space to herself in the manuscript announcement in the window. Mrs. Perkins, possessing information that she has been married a year and a half, though announced as Miss M. Melvilleson, the noted siren, and that her baby is clandestinely conveyed to the soul's arms every night to receive its natural nourishment during the entertainments. "'Sooner than which myself,' says Mrs. Perkins, "'I would get my living by selling lucifers.' Mrs. Piper, as in duty bound, is of the same opinion holding that a private station is better than public applause, and thanking heaven for her own, and by implication Mrs. Perkins, respectability. By this time the pot-boy of the Sol's Arms, appearing with her supper-pint, well frothed, Mrs. Piper accepts that tankard, and retires indoors, first giving a fair good-night to Mrs. Perkins, who has had her own pint in her hand ever since it was fetched from the same hostelry by young Perkins, before he was sent to bed. Now there is a sound of putting up shop-shutters in the court, and a smell as of the smoking of pipes, and shooting stars are seen in upper windows, further indicating retirement to rest. Now, too, the policeman begins to push at doors, to try fastenings, to be suspicious of bundles, and to administer his beat on the hypothesis that every one is either robbing or being robbed. It is a close night, 
though the damp cold is searching too, and there is a laggard mist a little way up in the air. It is a fine steaming night to turn the slaughter-houses, the unwholesome trades, the sewerage, bad water, and burial-grounds to account, and give the registrar of deaths some extra business. It may be something in the air, there is plenty in it, or it may be something in himself that is in fault, but Mr. Weevil, otherwise jobbling, is very ill at ease. He comes and goes between his own room and the open street-door twenty times an hour. He has been doing so ever since it fell dark. Since the Chancellor shut up his shop, which he did very early to-night, Mr. Weevil has been down and up, and down and up, with a cheap tight velvet skull-cap on his head, making his whiskers look out of all proportion, oftener than before. It is no phenomenon that Mr. Snagsby should be ill at ease too, for he always is so, more or less, under the oppressive influence of the secret that is upon him. Impelled by the mystery of which he is a partaker, and yet in which he is not a sharer, Mr. Snagsby haunts what seems to be its fountain-head, the rag-and-bottle shop in the court. It has an irresistible attraction for him. Even now, coming round by the Sol's arms, with the intention of passing down the court and out at the Chancery Lane end, and so terminating his unpremeditated after-supper stroll of ten minutes long from his own door and back again, Mr. Snagsby approaches. <clears throat> "'What, Mr. Weevil?' says the stationer, stopping to speak. "'Are you there?' "'Aye,' says Mr. Weevil. "'Here I am, Mr. Snagsby.' "'Ah, airing yourself, as I am doing, before you go to bed,' the stationer inquires. "'Why, there's not much air to be got here, and what there is is not very freshening,' Weevil answers, glancing up and down the court. "'Very true, sir. <laughs> Don't you observe?' says Mr. Snagsby, pausing to sniff and taste the air a little. "'Don't you observe, Mr. Weevil, that you're—not to put too fine a point upon it—that you're rather greasy here, sir?' "'Why, I have noticed myself that there is a queer kind of flavour in the place to-night,' Mr. Weevil rejoined. "'I suppose it's chops at the soul's arms.' "'Chops? <clears throat> Do you think so? Oh, chops, eh?' Mr. Snagsby sniffs and tastes again. "'Well, sir, I suppose it is. But I should say their cook at the Sol wanted a little looking after. She had been burning him, sir, and I don't think—' Mr. Snagsby sniffs and tastes again, and then spits and wipes his mouth. <clears throat> "'I don't think, not to put too fine a point upon it, that they were quite fresh when they were shown the gridiron.' "'That's very likely.' It's a tainting sort of weather. Uh, it is a tainting sort of weather, says Mr. Snagsby, and I find it sinking to the spirits. By George, I find it gives me the horrors, returns Mr. Weevil. <clears throat> then, you see, you live in a lonesome way and in a lonesome room with a black circumstance hanging over it says Mr. Snagsby, looking in past the other's shoulder, along the dark passage, and then falling back a step to look up at the house. "'I couldn't live in that room alone, as you do, sir. I should get so fidgety and worried of an evening sometimes that I should be driven to come to the door and stand here sooner than sit there. But then it's very true you didn't see in your room what I saw there. Yeah, that makes a difference.' "'I know quite enough about it,' 
returns Tony. <clears throat> it's not agreeable, is it? pursues Mr. Snagsby, coughing his cough of mild persuasion behind his hand. Mr. Crook ought to consider it in the rent. I hope he does, I am sure. I hope he does, says Tony, but I doubt it. You uh, <coughs> find the rent too high, do you, sir? returns the stationer. Rents are high about here. I don't know how it is exactly, but the law seems to put things up in price. <coughs> Not, adds Mr. Snagsby with his apologetic cough, that I mean to say a word against the profession I get my living by. Mr. Weevil again glances up and down the court, and then looks at the stationer. Mr. Snagsby, blankly catching his eye, looks upward for a star or so, and coughs a cough expressive of not exactly seeing his way out of this conversation. "'It's a curious fact, sir,' he observes, slowly rubbing his hands, "'that he should have been—' "'Who's he?' interrupts Mr. Weevil. "'The deceased, you know,' says Mr. Snagsby twitching his head and right eyebrow towards the staircase, and tapping his acquaintance on the button. "'Ah, to be sure,' returns the other, as if he were not over-fond of the subject. "'I thought we had done with him.' "'I was only going to say it's a curious fact, sir, that he should have come and lived here, and been one of my writers, and then that you should come and live here, and be one of my writers, too, which there is nothing derogatory, but far from it in the appellation," says Mr. Snagsby, breaking off with a mistrust that he may have unpolitely asserted a kind of proprietorship in Mr. Weevil. "'Because I have known writers that have gone into brewers' houses, and done really very respectable indeed—eminently respectable, sir,' adds Mr. Snagsby, with a misgiving that he has not improved the matter. "'It's a curious coincidence, as you say answers Weevil, once more, glancing up and down the court. "'Seems a <clears throat> fate in it, don't there?' suggests the stationer. "'There does.' <clears throat> "'Just so,' observed the stationer, with his confirmatory cough. "'Quite a fate in it. Quite a fate. Oh, well, uh, Mr. Weevil, I'm afraid I must bid you a good-night.' Mr. Snagsby speaks as if it made him desolate to go though he has been casting about for any means of escape ever since he stopped to speak. "'My uh, little woman will be looking for me else. Good night, sir.' If Mr. Snagsby hastens home to save his little woman the trouble of looking for him, he might set his mind at rest on that score. His little woman has had her eye upon him round the soul's arms all this time, and now glides after him with a pocket-handkerchief wrapped over her head honouring Mr. Weevil and his doorway with a searching glance as she goes past. "'You'll know me again, ma'am, at all events,' says Mr. Weevil to himself. "'And I can't compliment you on your appearance, whoever you are, with your head tied up in a bundle. Is this fellow never coming?' This fellow approaches as he speaks. Mr. Weevil softly holds up his finger, and draws him into the passage, and closes the front door. Then they go upstairs. Mr. Weevil heavily, and Mr. Guppy, for it is he, very lightly indeed. When they are shut into the back room, they speak low. "'I thought you'd gone to Jericho at least instead of coming here,' says Tony. "'Why, I said about ten. "'You said about ten, 
Tony repeats, "'Yes, so you did say about ten. According to my account, it's ten times ten. It's a hundred o'clock. I never had such a night in me life.' "'What has been the matter?' "'That's it,' says Tony. "'Nothing has been the matter.' "'But here have I been stewing and fuming in this jolly old crib "'till I have had the horrors falling on me as thick as hail. "'There's a blessed-looking candle,' says Tony, "'pointing to the heavily burning taper on his table, "'with a great cabbage head and a long winding sheet. "'That's easily improved,' Mr. Guppy observes "'as he takes the snuffers in hand. "'Is it?' returns his friend. "'Not so easily as you think. "'It has been smouldering like that ever since it was lighted.' "'Why?' "'What's the matter with you, Tony?' inquires Mr. Guppy, looking at him, snuffers in hand, as he sits down with his elbow on the table. "'William Guppy,' replies the other, "'I'm in the downs. It's this unbearably dull, suicidal room, and old bogey downstairs, I suppose.' Mr. Weevil moodily pushes the snuffers tray from him with his elbow, leans his head on his hand, puts his feet on the fender, and looks at the fire. Mr. Guppy, observing him, slightly tosses his head, and sits down on the other side of the table, in an easy attitude. "'Wasn't that uh, Snagsby talking to you, Tony?' "'Yes.' "'And he?' "'Yes, it was Snagsby,' said Mr. Weevil, altering the construction of his sentence. "'On business?' "'No, no business. He was only sauntering by and stopped to prose.' "'I thought it was Mr. Snagsby,' says Mr. Guppy and thought it as well that he shouldn't see me so i waited till he was gone there we go again william g cried tony looking up for an instant so mysterious and secret by george if we were going to commit a murder we couldn't have more mystery about it mr guppy affects to smile and with the view of changing the conversation looks with an admiration real or pretended round the room at the galaxy gallery of british beauty terminating his survey with the portrait of lady dedlock over the mantel-shelf, in which he is represented on a terrace, with a pedestal upon the terrace, and a vase upon the pedestal, and her shawl upon the vase, and a prodigious piece of fur upon the shawl, and her arm on the prodigious piece of fur, and a bracelet on her arm. "'That's very like Lady Dedlock,' says Mr. Guppy. "'It's a speaking likeness.' "'I wish it was,' growls Tony, without changing his position. "'I should have some fashionable conversation here, then.' Finding by this time that his friend is not to be wheedled into a more sociable humour, Mr. Guppy puts about upon the ill-used tack, and remonstrates with him. "'Tony,' says he, "'I can make allowances for loneliness of spirit, for no man knows what it is when it does come upon a man better than I do, and no man, perhaps, has a better right to know it than a man who has an unrequited image imprinted on his heart. But—' There are bounds to these things, when an unoffending party is in question, and I will acknowledge to you, Tony, that I don't think your manner on the present occasion is hospitable, or quite gentlemanly. "'This is strong language, William Guppy,' returns Mr. Weevil. "'Sir, it may be,' retorts Mr. William Guppy. "'But I feel strongly when I use it.' Mr. Weevil admits that he has been wrong, and begs Mr. William Guppy to think no more about it. Mr. William Guppy, however, having got the advantage, cannot quite release it without a little more injured remonstrance. "'Now, dash it, Tony,' says that gentleman, "'you really ought to be careful how you wound the feelings of a man who has an unrequited image imprinted on his heart, and who is not altogether happy in those chords which vibrate to the tenderest emotions. 
you tony possessing yourself all that is calculated to charm the eye and allure the taste it is not happily for you perhaps and i may wish that i could say the same it is not your character to hover around one flower the old garden is open to you and your airy pinions carry you through it still tony far be it from me i am sure to wound even your feelings without a cause tony again entreats that the subject may be no longer pursued saying emphatically william guppy drop it mr guppy acquiesces with the reply i never should have taken it up tony of my own accord and now says tony stirring the fire touching this same bundle of letters isn't it an extraordinary thing of crook to have appointed twelve o'clock to-night to hand him over to me very what do he do it for what does he do anything for he don't know said to-day was his birthday and he'd hand him over to-night at twelve o'clock he'll have drunk himself blind by that time he has been at it all day he hasn't forgotten the appointment i hope forgotten trust him for that he never forgets anything i saw him to-night about eight helped him to shut up his shop and he had got the letters then in his hairy cap he pulled it off and showed him me when the shop was closed he took him out of his cap hung his cap on the chair back and stood turning them over before the fire i heard him a little while afterwards through the floor here humming like the wind the only song he knows about bibbo and old charon and bibbo being drunk when he died or something or other oh, he has been as quiet since as an old rat asleep in his hole and you ought to go down at twelve at twelve and as i tell you when you came it seemed to me a hundred tony says mr guppy after considering a little with his legs crossed he can't read yet can he read he'll never read he can make all the letters separately and he knows most of em separately when he sees em he has got on that much under me but he can't put em together he's too old to acquire the knack of it now and too drunk tony says mr guppy uncrossing and recrossing his legs how do you suppose he spelt out that name of Orden. He never spelt it out. You know what a curious power of eye he has, and how he has been used to employ himself in copying things by eye alone. He imitated it, evidently from the direction of a letter, and asked me what it meant. Tony, says Mr. Guppy, uncrossing and recrossing his legs again, should you say that the original was a man's writing, or a woman's? A woman's. Fifty to one a ladies, slopes a good deal, and the end of the letter N, long and hasty. Mr. Guppy has been biting his thumbnail during this dialogue, generally changing the thumb when he has changed the cross leg. As he is going to do so again, he happens to look at his coat sleeve. It takes his attention. He stares at it aghast. Why, Tony, what on earth is going on in this house tonight? Is there a chimney on fire? chimney on fire ah oh, returns mr guppy see how the soup's falling see here on my arm see again on the table here confound the stuff it won't blow off smears like black fat they look at one another and tony goes listening to the door and a little way upstairs and a little way downstairs comes back and says it's all right and all quiet and quotes the remark he lately made to Mr. Snagsby about their cooking chops at the Sol's Arms. "'And it was then,' 
resumes Mr. Guppy, still glancing with remarkable aversion at the coat-sleeve, as they pursue their conversation before the fire, leaning on opposite sides of the table, with their heads very near together. "'That he told you of his having taken the bundle of letters from his lodger's portmanteau.' "'That was the time, sir,' answers Tony, faintly adjusting his whiskers. "'Whereupon I wrote a line to my dear boy, the Honourable William Guppy, informing him of the appointment for to-night, and advising him not to call before, bogey being a sly boots.' The light vivacious tone of fashionable life, which is usually assumed by Mr. Weevil, sits so ill upon him to-night, that he abandons that and his whiskers together, and after looking over his shoulder, appears to yield himself up a prey to the horrors again. "'You are to bring the letters to your room to read and compare, and to get yourself into a position to tell him all about them. That's the arrangement, isn't it, Tony?' asked Mr. Guppy, anxiously biting his thumbnail. "'You can't speak too low.' "'Yes, that's what he and I agreed.' "'I'll tell you what, Tony, you can't speak too low,' says Tony once more. Mr. Guppy nods his sagacious head, advances it yet closer, and drops into a whisper. "'I tell you what, the first thing to be done is to make another packet like the real one, so that if he should ask to see the real one while it's in my possession—' you can show him the dummy. And suppose he detects the dummy as soon as he sees it, which, with his biting screw of an eye, is about five hundred times more likely than not, suggests Tony. Then we'll face it out. They don't belong to him, and they never did. You found that, and you placed them in my hands, a legal friend of yours for security. If he forces us to it, they'll be producible, won't they?' yes is mr weevil's reluctant admission why tony remonstrates his friend how you look you don't doubt william guppy you don't suspect any harm i don't suspect anything more than i know william returns the other gravely and what do you know urges mr guppy raising his voice a little but on his friends once more warning him "'I tell you, you can't speak too low.' He repeats his question, without any sound at all forming with his lips, only the words, "'What do you know?' "'I know three things. First, I know that here we are whispering in secrecy a pair of conspirators.' "'Well,' says Mr. Guppy, "'and we had better be that, and a pair of noodles.' which we should be if we were doing anything else, for it's the only way of doing what we want to do. Secondly, secondly, it's not made out to me how it's likely to be profitable, after all. Mr. Guppy casts up his eyes at the portrait of Lady Dedlock over the mantel-shelf, and replies, "'Tony, you are asked to leave that to the honour of your friend. Besides, it's being calculated to serve that friend in those chords of the human mind, which, which need not be called into agonising vibration on the present occasion. Your friend is no fool. What's that? It's eleven o'clock striking by the bell of St. Paul's. Listen, and you'll hear all the bells in the city jangling. Both sit silent, listening to the metal voices, near and distant, resounding from towers of various heights, in tones more various than their situations. When these at length cease, all seems more mysterious and quiet than before. 
One disagreeable result of whispering is that it seems to evoke an atmosphere of silence, haunted by the ghosts of sound, strange cracks and tickings, the rustling of garments that have no substance in them, and the tread of dreadful feet that would leave no mark on the sea-sand or the winter snow. So sensitive the two friends happen to be, that the air is full of these phantoms, and the two look over their shoulders by one consent to see that the door is shut. "'Yes, Tony?' says Mr. Guppy, drawing nearer to the fire, and biting his unsteady thumbnail. "'You were going to say, thirdly?' "'It's far from a pleasant thing to be plotting about a dead man in the room where he died, especially when you happen to live in it.' "'But we're plotting nothing against him, Tony.' "'Maybe not. Still, I don't like it. Live here by yourself and see how you like it.' "'As to dead men, Tony,' proceeds Mr. Guppy, evading this proposal. "'There have been dead men in most rooms.' "'I know there have, but in most rooms you let em alone, and—and they let you alone,' Tony answers. The two look at each other again. Mr. Guppy makes a hurried remark to the effect that they may be doing the deceased a service, that he hopes so. There is an oppressive blank until Mr. Weevil, by stirring the fire, suddenly makes Mr. Guppy start, as if his heart had been stirred instead. "'Far! Here's more of this hateful suit hanging about,' says he. "'Let us open the window a bit and get a mouthful of air. It's too close.' He raises the sash, and they both rest on the window-sill, half in and half out of the room. The neighbouring houses are too near to admit of their seeing any sky, without craning their necks and looking up. But lights in frowsy windows here and there, and the rolling of distant carriages, and the new expression that there is of the stir of men they find to be comfortable. Mr. Guppy, noiselessly tapping on the window-sill, resumes his whispering in quite a light comedy tone. "'By the by, Tony, don't forget old Smallweed—meaning the younger of that name—I have not let him into this, you know. That grandfather of his is too keen by half. It runs in the family.' "'I remember,' says Tony. "'I'm up to all that.' "'And as to Crook,' resumes Mr. Guppy, "'now, do you suppose he's really got hold of any other papers of importance, as he has boasted to you, since you've been such allies?' Tony shakes his head. "'I don't know. Can't imagine. If we get through this business without rousing his suspicions, I shall be better informed, no doubt. How can I know without seeing him, when he don't know himself? He's always spelling out words from them, and chalking him over the table and the shop-wall, and asking what this is and what that is, but his whole stock from beginning to end may easily be the waste-paper he bought it as, for anything I can say. It's a monomania with him to think he is possessed of documents. He has been going to learn to read them this last quarter of a century, I should judge, from what he tells me. "'How did he first come by that idea, though? That's the question,' Mr. Guppy suggests, with one eye shut, after a little forensic meditation. He may have found papers in something he bought, where papers were not supposed to be, and may have got it into his shrewd edge from the manner and place of their concealment that they are worth something. Or he may have been taken in, in some pretended bargain, or he may have been muddled altogether by long staring at whatever he has got, and by drink, and by hanging about the Lord Chancellor's court and hearing of documents for ever, returns Mr. Weevil. Mr. Guppy, sitting on the window-sill, nodding his head, and balancing all these possibilities in his mind, continues thoughtfully to tap it, and clasp it, 
and measure it with his hand, until he hastily draws his hand away. "'What in the devil's name,' he says, "'is this? Look at my fingers!' A thick yellow liquor defiles them, which is offensive to the touch and sight, and more offensive to the smell. A stagnant, sickening oil, with some natural repulsion in it, that makes them both shudder. "'What have you been doing here? What have you been pouring out of the window?' "'I? Pouring out of window? Nothing, I swear. Never, since I've been here,' cries the lodger. "'And yet look here, and look here. When he brings the candle here, from the corner of the window-sill, it slowly drips and creeps away down the bricks. Here lies in a little thick, nauseous pool.' "'This is a horrible house,' says Mr. Guppy, shutting down the window. "'Give me some water, or I shall cut me hands off.' He so washes and rubs and scrubs and smells and washes that he has not long restored himself with a glass of brandy and stood silently before the fire when St. Paul's bell strikes twelve, and all those other bells strike twelve, from their towers of various heights in the dark air and in their many tones. When all is quiet again, the lodger says— it's the appointed time at last. Shall I go? Mr. Guppy nods, and gives him a lucky touch on the back, but not with the washed hand, though it is his right hand. He goes downstairs, and Mr. Guppy tries to compose himself before the fire for a waiting a long time, but in no more than a minute or two the stairs creak, and Tony comes swiftly back. Have you got em? Got em? No. The old man's not there. He has been so horribly frightened in the short interval— but his terror seizes the other, who makes a rush at him and asks loudly, "'What's the matter?' "'I couldn't make him hear, and I softly opened the door and looked in. And the burning smell is there, and the suit is there, and the oil is there, and he is not there.' Tony ends this with a groan. Mr. Guppy takes the light. They go down, more dead than alive, and holding one another— push open the door of the back shop. The cat has retreated close to it, and stands snarling, not at them, but something on the ground before the fire. There is a very little fire left in the grate, but there is a smouldering, suffocating vapour in the room, and a dark, greasy coating on the walls and ceiling. The chairs and table, and the bottle so rarely absent from the table, all stand as usual, on one chair back, hang the old man's hairy cap and coat. "'Look!' whispers the lodger, pointing his friend's attention to these objects with a trembling finger. "'I told you so. When I saw him last, he took his cap off, took out the little bundle of old letters, hung his cap on the back of the chair. His coat was there already, for he had pulled that off before he went to put the shutters up, and I left him turning the letters over in his hand.' standing just where that crumbled black thing is upon the floor. Is he hanging somewhere? They look up. No. See, whispers Tony, at the foot of the same chair, there lies a dirty bit of thin red cord that they tie up pens with. That went round the letters. He undid it slowly, leering and laughing at me before he began to turn them over, and threw it there. I saw it fall. "'What's the matter with the cat?' says Mr. Guppy. "'Look at her!' "'Mad, I think, and no wonder in this evil place.' They advance slowly, looking at all these things. The cat remains where they found her, 
still snarling at the something on the ground before the fire and between the two chairs. What is it? Hold up the light. Here is a small burnt patch of flooring. Here is the tinder from a little bundle of burnt paper, but not so light as usual, seeming to be steeped in something. And here is... Is it the cinder of a small charred and broken log of wood sprinkled with white ashes, or is it coal? Oh, horror! He is here. And this from which we run away, striking out the light and overturning one another into the street, is all that represents him. Help! 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 Come into this house, for heaven's sake! Plenty will come in, but none can help. The Lord Chancellor of that court— true to his title in his last act, has died the death of all Lord Chancellors in all courts, and of all authorities, in all places, under all names soever, where false pretences are made, and where injustice is done. Call the death by any name your Highness will, attribute it to whom you will, or say it might have been prevented how you will, it is the same death eternally, inborn, inbred, engendered in the corrupted humours of the vicious body itself, and that only spontaneous combustion, and none other of all the deaths that can be died. End of chapter 32「Chapter 33 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 33. Interlopers. Now to those two gentlemen, not very neat about the cuffs and buttons, who attended the last coroner's inquest at the Sol's Arms, reappear in the precincts with surprising swiftness, being in fact breathlessly fetched by the active and intelligent beadle, and institute perquisitions to the court and dive into the soul's parlour, and write with ravenous little pens on tissue-paper. Now do they note down, in the watches of the night, how the neighbourhood of Chancery Lane was yesterday, at about midnight, thrown into a state of the most intense agitation and excitement, by the following alarming and horrible discovery. Now do they set forth how it will doubtless be remembered that some time back a painful sensation was created in the public mind by a case of mysterious death from opium occurring in the first floor of the house occupied as a rag, bottle, and general marine store shop by an eccentric individual of intemperate habits, far advanced in life, named Crook, and how, by a remarkable coincidence, Crook was examined at the inquest which it may be recollected was held on that occasion at the Sol's Arms, a well-conducted tavern immediately adjoining the premises in question on the west side, and licensed to a highly respectable landlord, Mr. James George Bogsby. Now do they show, in as many words as possible, how during some hours of yesterday evening a very peculiar smell was observed by the inhabitants of the court, in which the tragical occurrence which forms the subject of that present account transpired and which odour was at one time so powerful that mr swills a comic vocalist professionally engaged by mr j g bogsby has himself stated to our reporter that he mentioned to miss m melvilson a lady of some pretensions to musical ability likewise engaged by mr j g bogsby to sing at a series of concerts called harmonic assemblies or meetings 
which it would appear I held at the Sol's arms, under Mr. Bogsby's direction, pursuant to the act of George the Second, that he, Mr. Swills, found his voice seriously affected by the impure state of the atmosphere, his jocose expression at the time being that he was like an empty post-office, for he hadn't a single note in him. How this account of Mr. Swills is entirely corroborated by two intelligent married females residing in the same court, and known respectively by the names of Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Perkins, both of whom observed the fettered effluvia, and regarded them as being omitted from the premises in the occupation of Crook, the unfortunate deceased. All this and a great deal more the two gentlemen who have formed an amicable partnership in the melancholy catastrophe write down on the spot and the boy population of the court, out of bed in a moment, swarm up the shutters of the Sol's Arms parlour to behold the tops of their heads while they are about it. The whole court, adult as well as boy, is sleepless for that night, and can do nothing but wrap up its many heads and talk of the ill-fated house and look at it. Miss Flight has been bravely rescued from her chamber as if it were in flames, and accommodated with a bed at the Sol's Arms. The Sol neither turns off its gas, nor shuts its door all night, for any kind of public excitement makes good for the Sol, and causes the court to stand in need of comfort. The house has not done so much on the stomachic article of clothes, or in brandy and water warm since the inquest. The moment the pot-boy heard what had happened, he rolled up his shirt-sleeves tight to his shoulders, and said, "'There'll be a run upon us!' In the first outcry, young Piper dashed off for the fire-engines, and returned in triumph at a jolting gallop perched up aloft on the phoenix, and holding on to that fabulous creature with all his might in the midst of helmets and torches. One helmet remains behind, after careful investigation of all chinks and crannies, and slowly paces up and down before the house, in company with one of the two policemen, who have likewise been left in charge thereof. To this trio, everybody in the court, possessed of sixpence, has an insatiate desire to exhibit hospitality in a liquid form. Mr. Weevil and his friend Mr. Guppy are within the bar at the Sol, and are worth anything to the Sol that the bar contains, if they will only stay there. "'This is not a time,' says Mr. Bogsby, "'to aggle about money,' though he looks something sharply after it over the counter. "'Give your orders, you two gentlemen, and you're welcome to whatever you put a name to.' Thus entreated, the two gentlemen, Mr. Weevil especially, put names to so many things, that in course of time they find it difficult to put a name to anything quite distinctly, though they still relate to all newcomers some version of the night they have had of it, and of what they said, and what they thought, and what they saw. Meanwhile, one or other of the policemen often flits about the door, and pushing it open a little way at the full length of his arm, looks in from outer gloom. Not that he has any suspicions, but that he may as well know what they are up to in there. Thus night pursues its leaden course, finding the court still out of bed through the unwonted hours, still treating and being treated, still conducting itself similarly to a court that has had a little money left it unexpectedly. Thus night at length with slow retreating steps departs, and the lamplighter going his rounds, like an executioner to a despotic king, strikes off the little heads of fire that have aspired to lessen the darkness. Thus the day cometh, whether or no. And the day may discern, even with its dim London eye, that the court has been up all night. 
over and above the faces that have fallen drowsily on tables, and the heels that lie prone on hard floors instead of beds, the brick-and-mortar physiognomy of the very court itself looks worn and jaded. And now the neighbourhood, waking up, and beginning to hear of what has happened, comes streaming in, half-dressed, to ask questions, and the two policemen and the helmet, who are far less impressible externally than the court, have enough to do to keep the door. <clears throat> "'Good gracious, gentlemen,' says Mr. Snagsby, coming up. <clears throat> "'What's this, I hear?' "'Why, it's true,' returns one of the policemen. "'That's what it is. Now move on here. Come.' "'Why, good gracious, gentlemen,' says Mr. Snagsby, somewhat promptly backed away, "'I was at this door last night, betwixt ten and eleven o'clock, in conversation with the young man who lodges here.' "'Indeed,' returns the policeman. "'You will find a young man next door, then. Now move on here, some of you.' "'Not hurt, I hope,' says Mr. Snagsby. "'Hurt? No. What's to hurt him?' Mr. Snagsby, wholly unable to answer this or any question in his troubled mind, repairs to the Sol's arms, and finds Mr. Weevil languishing over tea and toast, with a considerable expression on him of exhausted excitement and exhausted tobacco-smoke. "'And Mr. Guppy likewise,' quoth Mr. Snagsby. "'Oh, dear, 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 what a fate there seems in all this, and my lit—' Mr. Snagsby's power of speech deserts him in the formation of the words, "'My little woman,' for to see that injured female walk into the Sol's arms at that hour of the morning, and stand before the beer-engine, with her eyes fixed upon him like an accusing spirit, strikes him dumb. "'My dear,' says Mr. Snagsby, when his tongue is loosened, "'will you take anything, a little, not—' to put too fine a point upon it, drop of shrub. No, says Mrs. Snagsby. My love, you know these two gentlemen. Yes, says Mrs. Snagsby, and in a rigid manner acknowledges their presence, still fixing Mr. Snagsby with her eye. The devoted Mr. Snagsby cannot bear this treatment. He takes Mrs. Snagsby by the hand, and leads her aside to an adjacent cask. <coughs> "'My little woman, why do you look at me in that way? Pray don't do it.' "'I can't help my looks,' says Mrs. Snagsby, "'and if I could, I wouldn't.' Mr. Snagsby, with his cough of meekness, rejoins, "'Wouldn't you, really, my dear?' and meditates, then coughs his cough of trouble, and says, "'This is a dreadful mystery, my love.' still fearfully disconcerted by Mrs. Snagsby's eye. "'It is,' returns Mrs. Snagsby, shaking her head, "'a dreadful mystery.' "'My little woman,' urges Mr. Snagsby in a piteous manner, "'don't, for goodness' sake, speak to me with a bitter expression, and look at me in that searching way. I beg and entreat of you not to do it. Good Lord, you don't suppose that I would go spontaneously combusting any person, my dear?' "'I can't say,' returns Mrs. Snagsby. On a hasty review of his unfortunate position, Mr. Snagsby can't say either. He is not prepared positively to deny that he may have had something to do with it. He has had something, he don't know what, to do with so much in this connection, that is mysterious, that it is possibly he may even be implicated, 
without knowing it, in the present transaction. He faintly wipes his forehead with his handkerchief, and gasps. Oh, "'My life!' says the unhappy stationer. "'Would you have any objections to mention why, being in general so delicately circumspect in your conduct, to come into a wine-vaults before breakfast?' "'Why do you come here?' inquires Mrs. Snagsby. Uh, my, my dear, merely to know the rights of the fatal accident which has happened to the venerable party who has been combusted. Mr. Snagsby has made a pause to suppress a groan. I should then have related them to you, my love, over your French roll. I dare say you would. You relate everything to me, Mr. Snagsby. Every mile it. I should be glad said Mrs. Snagsby, after contemplating his increased confusion, with a severe and sinister smile. "'If you would come home with me, I think you may be safer there, Mr. Snagsby, than anywhere else.' "'My love, I don't know, but what I may be, I'm sure I'm ready to go.' Mr. Snagsby casts his eye forlornly round the bar, gives Messrs. Weevil and Guppy good morning, assures them of the satisfaction with which he sees them uninjured, and accompanies Mrs. Snagsby from the Sol's arms. Before night, his doubt whether he may not be responsible for some inconceivable part in the catastrophe, which is the talk of the whole neighbourhood, is almost resolved into certainty by Mrs. Snagsby's pertinacity in that fixed gaze. His mental sufferings are so great that he entertains wandering ideas of delivering himself up to justice, and requiring to be cleared if innocent, and punished with the utmost rigour of the law if guilty. Mr. Weevil and Mr. Guppy, having taken their breakfast, step into Lincoln's Inn to take a little walk about the square, and clear as many of the dark cobwebs out of their brains as a little walk may. "'There'll be no more favourable time than the present, Tony,' says Mr. Guppy, after they have broodingly made out the four sides of the square, "'for a word or two between us upon a point on which we must, with very little delay, come to an understanding.' "'Now,' "'I'll tell you what, William G.' returns the other, eyeing his companion with a bloodshot eye. "'If it's a point of conspiracy, you needn't take the trouble to mention it. I've had enough of that, and I ain't going to have any more. We shall have you taking fire next or blowing up with a bang.' This supposititious phenomenon is so very disagreeable to Mr. Guppy that his voice quakes, as he says in a moral way, "'Tony, I should have thought that what we went through last night would have been a lesson to you never to be personal any more as long as you lived.' To which Mr. Weevil returns, "'William, I should have thought it would have been a lesson to you never to conspire any more as long as you live.' To which Mr. Guppy says, "'Who's conspiring?' To which Mr. Jobling replies, "'Why, you are.' To which Mr. Guppy retorts, "'No, I'm not.' To which Mr. Jobling retorts again, "'Yes, you are.' To which Mr. Guppy retorts, "'Who says so?' To which Mr. Jobling retorts, "'I say so.' To which Mr. Guppy retorts, "'Oh, indeed.' To which Mr. Jobling retorts, "'Yes, indeed.' And both being now in a heated state, they walk on silently for a while to cool down again. "'Tony,' says Mr. Guppy then, "'if you heard your friend out instead of flying at him, you wouldn't fall into mistakes. But your temper is hasty, and you are not considerate, possessing in yourself, Tony, all that is calculated to charm the eye—oh, blow the eye!' 
cries Mr. Weevil, cutting him short. "'Say what you've got to say.' Finding his friend in this morose and material condition, Mr. Guppy only expresses the finer feelings of his soul through the tone of injury in which he recommences. "'Tony!' when i say there is a point on which we must come to an understanding pretty soon i say so quite apart from any kind of conspiring however innocent you know it is professionally arranged beforehand in all cases that are tried what facts the witnesses are to prove is it or is it not desirable that we should know what facts we are to prove on the inquiry into the death of this unfortunate old mo gentleman Mr. Guppy was going to say mogul, but thinks gentleman better suited to the circumstances. "'What facts? The facts?' "'The facts bearing on that inquiry. Those are,' Mr. Guppy tells them off on his fingers, "'what we knew of his habits, when you saw him last, what his condition was then, the discovery that we made, and how we made it.' "'Yes,' says Mr. Weevil. "'Those are about the facts.' "'We made the discovery, in consequence of his having, in his eccentric way, an appointment with you at twelve o'clock at night, when you were to explain some writing to him, as you had often done before, on account of his not being able to read. I, spending the evening with you, was called down, and so forth. The inquiry being only into the circumstances touching the death of the deceased, it's not necessary to go beyond these facts. I suppose you'll agree?' "'No,' returns Mr. Weevil. "'I suppose not.' "'And this is not a conspiracy, perhaps,' says the injured Guppy. "'No,' returns his friend. "'If it's nothing worse than this, I'll withdraw the observation.' "'Now, Tony,' says Mr. Guppy, taking his arm again and walking slowly on, "'I should like to know—' in a friendly way, whether you have yet thought over the many advantages of your continuing to live at that place. "'What do you mean?' says Tony, stopping. "'Whether you have yet thought over the many advantages of your continuing to live at that place,' repeats Mr. Guppy, walking him on again. "'At what place?' "'That place?' pointing in the direction of the rag-and-bottle shop. Mr. Guppy nods. "'Why?' "'I wouldn't pass another night there for any consideration that you could offer me,' says Mr. Weevil, haggardly staring. "'Do you mean it, though, Tony?' "'Mean it? Do I look as if I mean it? I feel as if I do. I know that,' says Mr. Weevil, with a very genuine shudder. "'Then the possibility, or probability, or such it must be considered, of your never being disturbed in possession of those effects lately belonging to a lone old man who seemed to have no relation in the world, and the certainty of your being able to find out what he really had got stored up there, don't weigh with you at all against last night, Tony, if I understand you,' says Mr. Guppy, biting his thumb with the appetite of vexation. "'Certainly not.' "'Talk in that cool way of a fellow's living there,' cries Mr. Weevil indignantly. "'Go and live there yourself.' "'Oh, I, Tony,' says Mr. Guppy, soothing him, "'I have never lived there, and couldn't get a lodging there now. "'Whereas you have got one.' "'You're welcome to it,' rejoins his friend. "'And, ugh, you make yourself at home in it.' "'Then you really and truly at this point—' 
says Mr. Guppy, "'give up the whole thing, if I understand you, Tony.' "'You never,' returns Tony, with a most convincing steadfastness, "'said a truer word in all your life. I do.' While they are so conversing, a hackney coach drives into the square, on the box of which vehicle a very tall hat makes itself manifest to the public. Inside the coach, and consequently not so manifest to the multitude, though sufficiently so to the two friends, for the coach stops almost at their feet, are the venerable Mr. Smallweed and Mrs. Smallweed, accompanied by their granddaughter Judy. An air of haste and excitement pervades the party, and as the tall hat, surmounting Mr. Smallweed the younger, alights, Mr. Smallweed the elder pokes his head out of the window, and bawls to Mr. Guppy, "'How de do, sir? How de do?' "'What do Chick and his family want here at this time of the morning, I wonder?' says Mr. Guppy, nodding to his familiar. "'My dear sir,' cries Grandfather Smallweed, "'would you do me a favour? Would you and your friend be so very obliging as to carry me into the public-house in the court, while Bart and his sister bring their grandmother along?' "'Would you do an old man that good turn, sir?' Mr. Guppy looks at his friend, repeating inquiringly, "'The public house in the court,' and they prepare to bear the venerable burden to the Sol's arms. "'There's your fare,' says the patriarch to the coachman, with a fierce grin and shaking his incapable fist at him. "'Ask me for a penny more, and I'll have my lawful revenge upon you.' "'My dear young men, be easy with me, if you please. Allow me to catch you round the neck. I won't squeeze you tighter than I can help. Oh, Lord! Oh, dear me! Oh, my bones!' It is well that the sol is not far off, for Mr. Weevil presents an apoplectic appearance before half the distance is accomplished, with no worse aggravation of his symptoms, however, than the utterance of diverse croaking sounds, expressive of obstructed respiration, he fulfils his share of the porterage, and a benevolent old gentleman is deposited by his own desire in the parlour of the Sol's arms. "'Oh, Lord!' gasps Mr. Smallweed, looking about him breathless from an armchair. "'Oh, dear me! Oh, my bones and back oh my aches and pains sit down you dancing prancing shambling scrambling pole parrot sit down this little apostrophe to mrs smallweed is occasioned by a propensity on the part of that unlucky old lady whenever she finds herself on her feet to amble about and set to inanimate objects accompanying herself with a chattering noise as in a witch dance a nervous affectation has probably as much to do with these demonstrations as any imbecile intention in the poor old woman but on the present occasion they are so particularly lively in connection with the windsor armchair fellow to that in which mr smallweed is seated that she only quite desists when her grandchildren have held her down in it her lord in the meanwhile bestowing upon her with great volubility the endearing epithet of a pig-headed jackdaw repeated a surprising number of times. "'My dear sir,' Grandfather Smallweed then proceeds, addressing Mr. Guppy, "'there has been a calamity here. Have you heard of it, either of you?' "'Heard of it, sir? Why, we discovered it.' "'You discovered it? You two discovered it. But they discovered it.' The two discoverers stare at the Smallweeds, who return the compliment. 
"'My dear friends,' whines Grandfather Smallweed, putting out both his hands, "'I owe you a thousand thanks for discharging the melancholy office of discovering the ashes of Mrs. Smallweed's brother.' "'Eh?' says Mr. Guppy. "'Mrs. Smallweed's brother, my dear friend, her only relation.' we were not on terms which is to be deplored now but he never would be on terms he was not fond of us he was eccentric he was very eccentric unless he has left a will which is not at all likely i shall take out letters of administration i have come down to look after the property it must be sealed up it must be protected i have come down repeats grandfather smallweed hooking the air towards him with all his ten fingers at once, to look after the property. "'I think, Small,' says the disconsolate Mr. Guppy, "'you might have mentioned that the old man was your uncle.' "'You two are so close about him that I thought you would like me to be the same,' returns that old bird with a secretly glistening eye. "'Besides, I wasn't proud of him.' "'Besides which, it's nothing to do with you, you know, whether he was or not,' says Judy, also with a secretly glistening eye. "'He never saw me in his life to know me,' observed Small. "'I don't know why. I should introduce him, I'm sure.' "'No, he never communicated with us, which is to be deplored,' the old gentleman strikes in. "'But I have come to look after the property.' to look over the papers and to look after the property we shall make good our title it is in the hands of my solicitor mr tulkinghorn of lincoln's inn fields over the way there he is so good as to act as my solicitor and grass don't grow under his feet i can tell you crook was mrs smallweed's only brother she had no relation but crook and Crook had no relation but Mrs. Smallweed. I'm speaking of your brother, your brimstone black beetle, that was seventy-six years of age. Mrs. Smallweed instantly begins to shake her head and pipe up. Seventy-six pounds, seven and sevenpence, seventy-six thousand bags of money, seventy-six hundred thousand million of parcels of banknotes. Will somebody give me a quart pot? exclaims her exasperated husband, looking helplessly about him and finding no missile within his reach. "'Will somebody oblige me with a spittoon? Will somebody hand me anything hard and bruising to pelt at her? You hag, you cat, you dog, you brimstone barker!' Here Mr. Smallweed, wrought up to the highest pitch by his own eloquence, actually throws Judy at her grandmother, in default of anything else, by butting that young virgin at the old lady with such force as he can muster, and then dropping into his chair in a heap. Oh, shake me up, somebody, if you'll be so good, says the voice from within the faintly struggling bundle into which he has collapsed. I have come to look after the property. Shake me up and call in the police on duty at the next house to be explained to about the property. My solicitor will be here presently to protect the property. Transportation or the gallows for anybody who shall touch the property. As his dutiful grandchildren set him up, panting, and putting him through the usual restorative process of shaking and punching, he still repeats like an echo, the, the property, the property, property. 
Mr. Weevil and Mr. Guppy look at each other, the former as having relinquished the whole affair, the latter with a discomfited countenance as having entertained some lingering expectations yet. But there is nothing to be done in opposition to the small weed interest. Mr. Tulkinghorn's clerk comes down from his official pew in the chambers to mention to the police that Mr. Tulkinghorn is answerable for its being all correct about the next of kin, and that the papers and effects will be formally taken possession of in due time and course. Mr. Smallweed is at once permitted so far to assert his supremacy as to be carried on a visit of sentiment into the next house and upstairs into Miss Flight's deserted room, where he looks like a hideous bird of prey newly added to her aviary. The arrival of this unexpected heir, soon taking wind in the court, still makes good for the soul, and keeps the court upon its mettle. Mrs. Piper and Mrs. Perkins think it hard upon the young man, if there really is no will, and consider that a handsome present ought to be made him out of the estate. Young Piper and young Perkins, as members of that restless juvenile circle, which is the terror of the foot-passengers in Chancery Lane, crumble into ashes behind the pump, and under the archway all day long, where wild yells and hootings take place over their remains. Little Swills and Miss M. Melvilleson enter into affable conversation with their patrons, feeling that these unusual occurrences level the barriers between professionals and non-professionals. Mr. Bogsby puts up the popular song of King Death, with chorus by the whole strength of the company, as the great harmonic feature of the week, and announces in the bill that J. G. B. is induced to do so, at a considerable extra expense, in consequence of a wish, which has been very generally expressed at the bar by a large body of respectable individuals, and in homage to a late melancholy event which has aroused so much sensation. There is one point connected with the deceased, upon which the court is particularly anxious, namely, that the fiction of a full-sized coffin should be preserved, though there is so little to put in it. Upon the undertaker's stating in the Sol's bar in the course of the day that he has received orders to construct a six-footer, the general solicitude is much relieved, and it is considered that Mr. Smallweed's conduct does him great honour. Out of the court— and a long way out of it, there is considerable excitement, too, for men of science and philosophy come to look, and carriages set down doctors at the corner, who arrive with the same intent, and there is more learned talk about inflammable gases and phosphoretted hydrogen than the court has ever imagined. Some of these authorities, of course the wisest, hold with indignation that the deceased had no business to die in the alleged manner and being reminded by other authorities of a certain inquiry into the evidence for such deaths reprinted in the sixth volume of the philosophical transactions and also of a book not quite unknown on english medical jurisprudence and likewise of the italian case of the countess cornelia bordi as set forth in detail by one bianchini prebendary of verona who wrote a scholarly work or so and was occasionally heard of in his time as having gleams of reason in him and also of the testimony of Messrs. Faudere and Mare, two pestilent Frenchmen who would investigate the subject, and further of the corroborative testimony of Monsieur Le Cat, a rather celebrated French surgeon once upon a time, who had the unpoliteness to live in a house where such a case occurred, and even to write an account of it. Still they regard the late Mr. Crook's obstinacy in going out of the world by any such byway as wholly unjustifiable and personally offensive." The less the court understands of all this, the more the court likes it, and the greater enjoyment it has in the stock-in-trade of the Sol's arms. Then there comes the artist of a picture-newspaper, 
with the foreground and figures ready drawn, for anything from a wreck on the Cornish coast to a review in Hyde Park or a meeting in Manchester. And in Mrs. Perkins' own room, memorable evermore, he then and there throws in upon the block Mr. Crook's house, as large as life, in fact considerably larger, making a very temple of it. Similarly, being permitted to look in at the door of the fatal chamber, he depicts that apartment as three-quarters of a mile long by fifty yards high, at which the court is particularly charmed. All this time the two gentlemen before mentioned pop in and out of every house and assist the philosophical disputations, going everywhere and listen to everybody, and yet are always diving into the soul's parlour and writing with ravenous little pens on the tissue-paper. At last come the coroner and his inquiry, like as before, except that the coroner cherishes this case, as being out of the common way, and tells the gentleman of the jury, in his private capacity, that, "'That would seem to be an unlucky house next door, gentlemen, a destined house, but so we sometimes find it, and these are mysteries we can't account for,' after which the six-footer comes into action, and is much admired." In all these proceedings Mr. Guppy has so slight a part, except when he gives his evidence, that he is moved on like a private individual, and can only haunt the secret house on the outside, where he has the mortification of seeing Mr. Smallweed padlocking the door, and of bitterly knowing himself to be shut out. But before these proceedings draw to a close, that is to say, on the night next after the catastrophe, Mr. Guppy has a thing to say that must be said to Lady Dedlock for which reason with a sinking heart and with that hang-dog sense of guilt upon him which dread and watching and folded in the soul's arms have reduced the young man of the name of guppy presents himself at the town mansion at about seven o'clock in the evening and requests to see her ladyship mercury replies that she is going out to dinner don't he see the carriage at the door yes he does see the carriage at the door but he wants to see my lady too Mercury is disposed, as he will presently declare to a fellow gentleman in waiting, to pitch into the young man, but his instructions are positive. Therefore he sulkily supposes that the young man must come into the library. There he leaves the young man in a large room, not over light, while he makes report of him. Mr. Guppy looks into the shade in all directions, discovering everywhere a certain charred and whitened little heap of coal or wood. Presently he hears a rustling. Is it? No. It's no ghost, but fair flesh and blood, most brilliantly dressed. "'I have to beg your ladyship's pardon,' Mr. Guppy stammers, very downcast. "'This is an inconvenient time.' "'I told you, you could come at any time.' She takes a chair, looking straight at him as on the last occasion. Oh, "'Thank you, your ladyship. Your ladyship is very affable.' "'You can sit down.' "'There is not much affability in her tone.' "'I don't know, your ladyship, that it's worth while my sitting down and detaining you, for I—I I have not got the letters that I mentioned when I had the honour of waiting on your ladyship.' "'Have you come merely to say so?' Uh, "'Merely to say so, your ladyship.' Mr. Guppy, besides being depressed— disappointed and uneasy, is put at a further disadvantage by the splendour and beauty of her appearance. She knows its influence perfectly, has studied it too well to miss a grain of its effect on any one. As she looks at him so steadily and coldly, 
he not only feels conscious that he has no guide in the least perception of what is really the complexion of her thoughts, but also that he is being every moment, as it were, removed further and further from her. She will not speak, it is plain, so he must. "'In short, your ladyship,' says Mr. Cuppy, like a meanly penitent thief, "'the person I was to have had the letters of has come to a sudden end, and—' He stops. Lady Dedlock calmly finishes the sentence. "'And the letters are destroyed with the person?' Mr. Guppy would say no if he could, as he is unable to hide. "'I believe so, your ladyship.' If you could see the least sparkle of relief in her face now—no, he could see no such thing, even if that brave outside did not utterly put him away, and he were not looking beyond it and about it. He falters an awkward excuse or two for his failure. "'Is this all you have to say?' inquires Lady Dedlock, having heard him out, or as nearly out, as he can stumble. Mr. Guppy thinks that's all. "'You had better be sure that you wish to say nothing more to me, this being the last time you'll have the opportunity.' Mr. Guppy is quite sure, and indeed he has no such wish at present by any means. "'That is enough.' I will dispense with excuses. Good evening to you." And she rings for Mercury to show the young man of the name of Guppy out. But in that house, in that same moment, there happens to be an old man of the name of Tulkinghorn. And that old man, coming with his quiet footstep to the library, has his hand at the moment on the handle of the door, comes in, and comes face to face with the young man as he is leaving the room. One glance between the old man and the lady, and for an instant the blind that is always down flies up. Suspicion, eager and sharp, looks out. Another instant, close again. "'I beg your pardon, Lady Dedlock. I beg your pardon a thousand times. It is so very unusual to find you here this hour. I suppose the room was empty. I beg your pardon.' "'Stay,' she negligently calls him back. "'Remain here, I beg.' I am going out to dinner. I have nothing more to say to this young man." The disconcerted young man bows as he goes out, and cringingly hopes that Mr. Tulkinghorn of the Fields is well. "'Aye, aye,' says the lawyer, looking at him from under his bent brows, though he has no need to look again, not he. "'From Kenge and Carboys, surely?' "'Kenge and Carboys, Mr. Tulkinghorn. Name of uh, Guppy, sir.' "'To be sure. My thank you, Mr. Guppy. I am very well.' "'Oh, happy to hear it, sir. You can't be too well, sir, for the credit of the profession.' "'Thank you, Mr. Guppy.' Mr. Guppy sneaks away. Mr. Tulkinghorn, such a foil in his old-fashioned rusty black to Lady Dedlock's brightness, hands her down the staircase to her carriage. He returns, rubbing his chin, and rubs it a good deal in the course of the evening. End of chapter 33「Chapter 34 of Bleak House This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 34 A Turn of the Screw. "'Now what?' says Mr. George. "'May this be. 
Is it blank cartridge or ball? A flash in the pan or a shot? An open letter is the subject of the trooper's speculations, and it seems to perplex him mightily. He looks at it at arm's length, brings it close to him, holds it in his right hand, holds it in his left hand, reads it with his head on this side, with his head on that side, contracts his eyebrows, elevates them, still cannot satisfy himself. He smooths it out upon the table with his heavy palm, and thoughtfully walking up and down the gallery, makes a halt before it every now and then, to come upon it with a fresh eye. Even that won't do. Is it? Mr. George still muses. Blank cartridge or ball? Phil Squad, with the aid of a brush and paint-pot, is employed in the distance whitening the targets, softly whistling in quick march time, and in drum and fife manner, that he must and will go back again to the girl he left behind him. Phil! The trooper beckons as he calls him. Phil approaches in his usual way, sidling off at first as if he were going anywhere else, and then bearing down upon his commander like a bayonet charge. Certain splashes of white show in high relief upon his dirty face, and he scrapes his one eyebrow with the handle of the brush. "'Attention, Phil. Listen to this.' "'Steady, Commander. Steady.' "'Sir, allow me to remind you, though there is no legal necessity for my doing so, as you are aware, that the bill, at two months' date, drawn on yourself by Mr. Matthew Bagnet, and by you accepted for the sum of ninety-seven pounds, four shillings, and ninepence, will become due to-morrow, when you will please be prepared to take up the same on presentation. Yours, Joshua Smallweed. What do you make of that, Phil? Miss Chief, Governor. Why? "'I think,' replies Phil, after pensively tracing out a cross-winkle in his forehead with the brush-handle, "'that mischievous consequences is always meant when money's asked for.' "'Looky, Phil,' said the trooper, sitting on the table, First and last, I have paid, I may say, half as much again as this principal in interest in one thing and another.' Phil intimates, by sidling back a pace or two with the very unaccountable wrench of his wry face, that he does not regard the transaction as being made more promising by this incident. "'And looky further, Phil,' says the trooper, staying his premature conclusions with a wave of his hand, "'there has always been an understanding that this bill was to be what they call renewed, and it has been renewed no end of times. What do you say now?' "'I say that I think the time has come to an end at last.' "'You do?' <laughs> "'I am much of the same mind myself.' "'Joshua Smallweed is him that was brought here in a chair?' "'The same.' "'Governor,' says Phil, with exceeding gravity, "'he's a leech in his dispositions. "'He's a screw and a weiss in his actions.' a snake in his twistings, and a lobster in his claws. Having thus expressively uttered his sentiments, Mr. Squad, after waiting a little to ascertain if any further remark be expected of him, gets back by his usual series of movements to the target he has in hand, and vigorously signifies, through his former musical medium, that he must, and he will, return to that ideal young lady. George, having folded the letter, walks in that direction. There is a way, Commander, 
says Phil, looking cunningly at him, of settling this. Paying the money, I suppose. I wish I could. Phil shakes his head. No, Governor, no. Not so bad as that. There is a way, says Phil, with a highly artistic turn of his brush, what I'm a-doing at present. Whitewashing? Phil nods. A pretty way that would be. Do you know what would become of the bagnets in that case? Do you know they would be ruined to pay off my old scores? You're a moral character, says the trooper, eyeing him in his large way with no small indignation. Upon my life you are, Phil. Phil, on one knee at the target, is in course of protesting earnestly, though not without many allegorical scoops of his brush, and smoothings of the white surface round the rim with his thumb, that he had forgotten the bagnet responsibility, and would not so much as injure a hair of the head of any member of that worthy family, when steps are audible in the long passage without, and a cheerful voice is heard to wonder whether George is at home. Phil, with a look at his master, hobbles up, saying, "'Here's the governor, Mrs. Bagnet. Here he is.' and the old girl herself, accompanied by Mr. Bagnet, appears. The old girl never appears in walking trim, in any season of the year, without a grey cloth cloak, coarse and much worn, but very clean, which is, undoubtedly, the identical garment rendered so interesting to Mr. Bagnet by having made its way home to Europe from another quarter of the globe in company with Mrs. Bagnet and an umbrella. The latter faithful appendage is also invariably a part of the old girl's presence out of doors. It is of no colour known in this life, and has a corrugated wooden crook for a handle, with a metallic object let into its prow or beak, resembling a little model of a fanlight over a street door, or one of the oval glasses out of a pair of spectacles, which ornamental object has not that tenacious capacity of sticking to its post that might be desired in an article long associated with the British Army. The old girl's umbrella is of a flabby habit of waste, and seems to be in need of stays, an appearance that is possibly referable to its having served through a series of years at home as a cupboard, and on journeys as a carpet-bag. She never puts it up, having the greatest reliance on her well-proved cloak with its capacious hood, but generally uses the instrument as a wand with which to point out joints of meat or bunches of greens in marketing, or to arrest the attention of tradesmen by a friendly poke. Without her market-basket, which is a sort of wicker well with two flapping lids, she never stirs abroad. Attended by these her trusty companions, therefore, her honest sunburnt face looking cheerily out of a rough straw bonnet, Mrs. Bagnet now arrives, fresh-coloured and bright, in George's shooting-gallery. "'Well, George, old fellow,' says she, "'and how do you do this sunshiny morning?' Giving him a friendly shake of the hand, Mrs. Bagnet draws a long breath after her walk, and sits down to enjoy a rest. Having a faculty, matured on the tops of baggage-wagons, and in other such positions, of resting easily anywhere, she perches on a rough bench, unties her bonnet-strings, pushes back her bonnet, crosses her arms, and looks perfectly comfortable. Mr. Bagnet, in the meantime, has shaken hands with his old comrade, and with Phil, on whom Mrs. Bagnet likewise bestows a good-humoured nod and smile. "'Now, George,' said Mrs. Bagnet, briskly, "'here we are, Lignum and myself.' She often speaks of her husband by this appellation, on account, as it is supposed, of Lignum Vitae, having been his old regimental nickname when they first became acquainted, in compliment to the extreme hardness and toughness of his physiognomy. 
just looked in we have to make it all correct as usual about that security give him the new bill to sign george and he'll sign it like a man i was coming to you this morning observes the trooper reluctantly yes we thought you'd come to us this morning but we turned out early and left woolwich the best of boys to mind his sisters and came to you instead as you see for lignum he's tied so close now and gets so little exercise that a walk does him good well, what's the matter george asked mrs bagnet stopping in her cheerful talk you don't look yourself i'm not quite myself returns the trooper i have been a little put out mrs bagnet her bright quick eye catches the truth directly george holding up her forefinger. "'Don't tell me there's anything wrong about that security of Lignum's. Don't do it, George, on account of the children.' The trooper looks at her with a troubled visage. "'George!' says Mrs. Bagnet, using both her arms for emphasis, and occasionally bringing down her open hands upon her knees. "'If you have allowed anything wrong to come to that security of Lignum's, and if you have let him in for it—' and if you will put us in danger of being sold up and i see sold up in your face george as plain as print you have done a shameful action and have deceived us cruelly i tell you cruelly george there mr bagnet otherwise as immovable as a pump or a lamp-post puts his large right hand on the top of his bald head as if to defend it from a shower-bath and looks with great uneasiness at mrs bagnet george says that old girl. Oh, I wonder at you, George. I'm ashamed of you. George, I couldn't have believed you would have done it. I always knew you to be a rolling stone that gathered no moss, but I never thought you would have taken away that what little moss there was for Bagnet and the children to lie upon. You know what a hard-working, steady-going chap he is. You know what Quebec and Malta and Woolwich are, and I never did think you would, or could, have had the art to serve us so oh george mrs bagnet gathers up her cloak to wipe her eyes on in a very genuine manner how could you do it mrs bagnet ceasing mr bagnet removes his hand from his head as if the shower-bath were over and looks disconsolately at mr george who has turned quite white and looks distressfully at the grey cloak and straw bonnet Matt says the trooper in a subdued voice, addressing him, but still looking at his wife. "'I'm sorry you take it so much to heart, because I do hope it's not so bad as that comes to. I certainly have, this morning, received this letter,' which he reads aloud. "'But I hope it may be set right yet. As to a rolling stone, why, what you say is true. I am a rolling stone.' and I never rolled in anybody's way, I fully believe, that I rolled the least good to. But it's impossible for an old vagabond comrade to like your wife and family better than I like em, Matt, and I trust you'll look upon me as forgivingly as you can. Don't think I've kept anything from you. I haven't had the letter more than a quarter of an hour. Old girl, murmurs Mr. Bagnet, after a short silence, will you tell em my opinion oh why didn't he marry mrs bagnet answers half laughing and half crying joe pouch's widder in north america 
and he wouldn't have got himself into these troubles. The old girl, says Mr. Bagnet, puts it correct. Why didn't you? Well, she has a better husband by this time, I hope, returns the trooper. Anyhow, here I stand this present day, not married to Joe Poucher's widow. What shall I do? You see, all I've got about me, it's not mine, it's yours. Give the word, and I'll sell off every morsel. If I could have hoped it would have brought in nearly the sum wanted, I'd have sold all long ago. Don't believe that I leave you or yours in the lurch, Matt. I'd sell myself first. I only wish, says the trooper, giving himself a disparaging blow in the chest, that I knew of any one who'd buy such a second-hand piece of old stores. Old girl, murmurs Mr. Bagnet, give him another bit of my mind. George, says the old girl, you're not so much to be blamed, on full consideration, except for ever taking this business without the means. And that was like me, observes the penitent trooper, shaking his head. Like me, I know. Silence. The old girl, says Mr. Bagnet, is correct in her way of giving my opinions. Hear me out. That was when you never ought to have asked for the security, George, and when you never ought to have got it, all things considered. But what's done can't be undone. You are always an honourable and straightforward fellow, as far as lays in your power, though a little flighty. On the other hand, you can't admit but what it's natural in us to be anxious with such a thing hanging over our heads. So forget and forgive all round, George. Come, forget and forgive all round. Mrs. Bagnet giving him one of her honest hands, and giving her husband the other, Mr. George gives each of them one of his, and holds them while he speaks. I do assure you both there's nothing I wouldn't do to discharge this obligation. But whatever I have been able to scrape together has gone every two months in keeping it up. We have lived plainly enough here, Phil and I, but the gallery don't quite do what was expected of it. And it's not, in short, it's not the mint. It was wrong in me to take it. Well, so it was. But I was in a manner torn into that step, and I thought it might steady me and set me up and you'll try to overlook my having such expectations, and upon my soul I am very much obliged to you, and very much ashamed of myself. With these concluding words, Mr. George gives a shake to each of the hands he holds, and relinquishing them, backs a pace or two in a broad-chested, upright attitude, as if he had made a final confession, and were immediately going to be shot with all military honours. "'George, hear me out!' says Mr. Bagnet, glancing at his wife. "'Old girl, go on.' Mr. Bagnet, being in this singular manner heard out, has merely to observe that the letter must be attended to without any delay, that it is advisable that George and he should immediately wait on Mr. Smallweed in person, and that the primary object is to save and hold harmless Mr. Bagnet, who had none of the money. Mr. George, entirely assenting, puts on his hat and prepares to march with Mr. Bagnet to the enemy's camp. "'Don't you mind a woman's hasty word, George?' says Mrs. Bagnet, patting him on the shoulder. "'I trust my old lignum to you, and I'm sure you'll bring him through it.' 
The trooper returns that this is kindly said, and that he will bring Lignum through it somehow. Upon which Mrs. Bagnet, with her cloak, basket, and umbrella, goes home bright-eyed again to the rest of her family, and the comrades sally forth on the hopeful errand of mollifying Mr. Smallweed. Whether there are two people in England less likely to come satisfactorily out of any negotiation with Mr. Smallweed than Mr. George and Mr. Matthew Bagnet may be very reasonably questioned. Also, notwithstanding their martial appearance, broad square shoulders, and heavy tread, whether there are within the same limits two more simple and unaccustomed children in all the small weedy affairs of life. As they proceed with great gravity through the streets towards the region of Mount Pleasant, Mr. Bagnet, observing his companion to be thoughtful, considered it a friendly part to refer to Mrs. Bagnet's late sally. "'George, you know the old girl. She's as sweet and as mild as milk. But touch her on the children, or myself, and she's off like gunpowder.' "'It does her credit, Matt.' "'George,' says Mr. Bagnet, looking straight before him, "'the old girl can't do anything.' that don't do her credit. More or less, I never say so, discipline must be maintained. She is worth her weight in gold, says the trooper. In gold? says Mr. Bagnet. I'll tell you what. The old girl's weight is twelve stone six. Would I take that weight in any metal for the old girl? No. Why not? because the old girl's metal is far more precious than the preciousest metal, and she's all metal. You're right, Matt. When she took me, and accepted of the ring, she listed under me and the children, heart and head for life. She's that earnest, says Mr. Bagnet. And true to her colours, that touch us with a finger, and she turns out, and stands to her arms, if the old girl fires wide, once in a way, at the call of duty, look over it, George, for she's loyal. Why, bless her, Matt, returns the trooper, I think the higher of her for it. You're right, says Mr. Bagnet, with the warmest enthusiasm, though without relaxing the rigidity of a single muscle, think as high of the old girl as the rock of Gibraltar, and still you'll be thinking low of such merits. But I never owned to it before her. Discipline must be maintained. These encomiums bring them to Mount Pleasant, and to Grandfather Smallweed's house. The door is opened by the perennial Judy, who, having surveyed them from top to toe with no particular favour, but indeed with a malignant sneer, leaves them standing there while she consults the oracle as to their admission. The oracle may be inferred to give consent from the circumstance of her returning with the words on her honey lips that they can come in if they want to. Thus privileged, they come in and find Mr. Smallweed with his feet in the drawer of his chair, as if it were a paper foot-bath, and Mrs. Smallweed obscured with a cushion like a bird that is not to sing. "'My dear friend,' says Grandfather Smallweed, with those two lean affectionate arms of his stretched forth, how de do how de do who is our friend my dear friend why this returns george not able to be very conciliatory at first is matthew bagnet who has obliged me in that matter of ours you know oh mr bagnet surely the old man looks at him under his hand 
"'Hope you're well, Mr. Bagnet. "'Fine man, Mr. George. Military air, sir.' No chairs being offered, Mr. George brings one forward for Bagnet and one for himself. They sit down. Mr. Bagnet, as if he had no power of bending himself except the hips for that purpose. "'Judy!' says Mr. Smallweed. "'Bring the pipe.' "'Why, I don't know,' Mr. George interposes. "'That the young woman need give herself that trouble. But to tell you the truth, I'm not inclined to smoke it to-day.' "'Ain't you?' returns the old man. "'Judy, bring the pipe.' "'The fact is, Mr. Smallweed,' proceeds George, "'that I find myself in rather an unpleasant state of mind.' "'It appears to me, sir, that your friend in the city has been playing tricks.' "'Oh, dear, no,' says Grandfather Smallweed. "'He never does that.' "'Don't he? Well, I'm glad to hear it, because I thought it might be his doing. This, you know, I am speaking of, this letter.' Grandfather Smallweed smiles in a very ugly way in recognition of the letter. "'What does it mean?' asks Mr. George. "'Judy,' says the old man, "'have you got the pipe? Give it to me. Did you say, what does it mean, my good friend?' "'Aye. Now, come, come. You know, Mr. Smallweed,' urges the trooper, constraining himself to speak as smoothly and confidentially as he can, holding the open letter in one hand and resting the broad knuckles of the other on his thigh. A good lot of money has passed between us, and we are face to face at the present moment, and are both well aware of the understanding there has always been. I am prepared to do the usual thing, which I have done regularly, and to keep this matter going. I never got a letter like this from you before, and I have been a little put about by it this morning, because here is my friend, Matthew Bagnet, who, you know, had none of the money. I don't know it. "'You know,' says the old man quietly. "'Why, confound you, it, I mean. I tell you so, don't I?' "'Oh, yes, you tell me so,' returns Grandfather Smallweed. "'But I don't know it.' "'Well,' says the trooper, swallowing his fire, "'I know it.' Mr. Smallweed replies with excellent temper, "'Ah, that's quite another thing,' and adds, "'But it don't matter. Mr. Bagnet's situation is all one, whether or no.' The unfortunate George makes a great effort to arrange the affair comfortably, and to propitiate Mr. Smallweed by taking him upon his own terms. "'That's just what I mean. As you say, Mr. Smallweed, he is Matthew Bagnet, liable to be fixed whether or no. Now, you see, that makes his good lady very uneasy in her mind, and me too. For whereas I'm a harem scarum sort of a good for naught, that more kicks than halfpence come natural to, why, he's a steady family man, don't you see? Now, Mr. Smallweed, says the trooper, gaining confidence as he proceeds in his soldierly mode of doing business, although. You and I are good friends enough, in a certain sort of way. I am well aware that I can't ask you to let my friend Bagnet off entirely. 
oh dear you are too modest you can ask me anything mr george there is an ogreish kind of jocularity in grandfather smallweed to-day and you can refuse you mean eh or not you so much perhaps as your friend in the city <laughs> echoes grandfather smallweed in such a very hard manner and with eyes so particularly green that mr bagnet's natural gravity is much deepened by the contemplation of that venerable man come says the sanguine george i am glad to find we can be pleasant because i want to arrange this pleasantly here's my friend bagnet and here am i we'll settle the matter on the spot if you please mr smallweed in the usual way and you'll ease my friend bagnet's mind and his family's mind a good deal if you'll just mention to him what our understanding is here some shrill spectre cries out in a mocking manner oh good gracious oh unless indeed it be the sport of judy who is found to be silent when the startled visitors look round but whose chin has received a recent toss expressive of derision and contempt mr bagnet's gravity becomes yet more profound that i think you asked me mr george old smallweed who all this time has had the pipe in his hand is the speaker now i think you asked me what did the letter mean why yes i did returns the trooper in his off-hand way but i don't care to know particularly if it's all correct and pleasant mr smallweed purposely balking himself in an aim at the trooper's head throws the pipe on the ground and breaks it to pieces that's what it means my dear friend i'll smash you i'll crumble you i'll powder you go to the devil the two friends rise and look at one another mr bagnet's gravity has now attained its profoundest point go to the devil repeats the old man i'll have no more of your pipe smokings and swaggerings what you're an independent dragoon too go to my lawyer you remember where you've been there before and show your independence now will you come my dear friend there's a chance for you open the door judy put these blasterers out call in help if they don't go put em out he vociferates this so loudly that mr bagnet laying his hands on the shoulders of his comrade before the latter can recover from his amazement gets him on the outside of the street door which is instantly slammed by the triumphant judy utterly confounded mr george a while stands looking at the knocker mr bagnet in a perfect abyss of gravity walks up and down before the little parlour window like a sentry and looks in every time he passes apparently revolving something in his mind come matt says mr george when he has recovered himself we must try the lawyer now what do you think of this rascal mr bagnet stopping to take a farewell look into the parlour replies with one shake of his head directed at the interior if my old girl had been here i'd have told him having so discharged himself of the subject of his cogitations 
he falls into step, and marches off with the trooper, shoulder to shoulder. When they present themselves in Lincoln's Inn Fields, Mr. Tulkinghorn is engaged, and not to be seen. He is not at all willing to see them, for when they have waited a full hour, and the clerk, on his bell being rung, takes the opportunity of mentioning as much, he brings forth no more encouraging message than Mr. Tulkinghorn has nothing to say to them, and they had better not wait. They do wait, however, with the perseverance of military tactics, and at last the bell rings again, and the client in possession comes out of Mr. Tulkinghorn's room. The client is a handsome old lady, no other than Mrs. Rouncewell, housekeeper at Chesney Wold. She comes out of the sanctuary with a fair old-fashioned curtsy, and softly shuts the door. She is treated with some distinction there, for the clerk steps out of his pew to show her through the outer office, and to let her out. The old lady is thanking him for his attention, when she observes the comrades in waiting. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but I think those gentlemen are military.' The clerk, referring the question to them with his eye, and Mr. George not turning round from the almanac over the fireplace, Mr. Bagnet takes upon himself to reply, "'Yes, ma'am, formally.' "'I thought so. I was sure of it. My heart warms, gentlemen, at the sight of you. It always does at the sight of such. God bless you, gentlemen. You'll excuse an old woman.' but i had a son once who went for a soldier a fine handsome youth he was and good in his bold way though some people did disparage him to his poor mother i ask your pardon for troubling you sir god bless you gentlemen same to you ma'am returns mr bagnet with right good will there is something very touching in the earnestness of the old lady's voice and in the tremble that goes through her quaint old figure but Mr. George is so occupied with the almanac over the fireplace, calculating the coming months by it, perhaps, that he does not look round until she has gone away, and the door is closed upon her. "'George,' Mr. Bagnet gruffly whispers when he does turn from the almanac at last, "'don't be cast down. Why, soldiers, why should we be melancholy boys? Cheer up, my hearty!' The clerk having now again gone in to say that they are still there, and Mr. Tulkinghorn being heard to return with some irascibility, "'Let them come in, then,' they pass into the great room with the painted ceiling, and find him standing before the fire. "'Now, you men, what do you want? Sergeant, I told you the last time I saw you that I don't desire your company here.' Sergeant replies— dashed within the last few minutes as to his usual manner of speech, and even at his usual carriage, that he has received this letter, has been to Mr. Smallweed about it, and has been referred there. "'I have nothing to say to you,' returns Mr. Tulkinghorn. "'If you get into debt, you must pay your debts, or take the consequences. You have no occasion to come here to learn that, I suppose.' Sergeant is sorry to say that he is not prepared with the money. "'Very well. Then the other man. This man.' if this is he, must pay for it for you. Sergeant is sorry to add that the other man is not prepared with the money either. Very well. Then you must pay it between you, or you must both be sued for it, and both suffer. You have had the money, and must refund it. You are not to pocket other people's pounds, shillings, and pence, and escape scot-free. The lawyer sits down in his easy chair, and stirs the fire. Mr. George hopes he will have the goodness to— I tell you, Sergeant, I have nothing to say to you. I don't like your associates, 
and don't want you here. This matter is not at all in my course of practice, and is not in my office. Mr. Smallweed is good enough to offer these affairs to me, but they are not in my way. You must go to Melchizedek's and Clifford's Inn. I must make an apology to you, sir, says Mr. George, for pressing myself upon you with so little encouragement, which is almost as unpleasant to me as it can be to you. But would you let me say a private word to you? Mr. Tulkinghorn rises, with his hands in his pockets, and walks into one of the window recesses. "'Now, I have no time to waste.' In the midst of his perfect assumption of indifference, he directs a sharp look at the trooper, taking care to stand with his own back to the light, and to have the other with his face towards it. "'Well, sir,' says Mr. George, "'this man with me is the other party implicated in this unfortunate affair.' Nominally, only nominally, and my sole object is to prevent his getting into trouble on my account. He is a most respectable man, with a wife and family. Formerly, in the Royal Artillery, my friend, I don't care a pinch of snuff for the whole Royal Artillery establishment, officers, men, tumbrils, wagons, horses, guns, and ammunition. "'Tis likely, sir.' but i care a good deal for bagnet and his wife and family being injured on my account and if i could bring em through this matter i should have no help for it but to give up without any other consideration what you wanted of me the other day have you got it here i have got it here sir sergeant the lawyer proceeds in his dry passionless manner far more hopeless in the dealing with than any amount of vehemence "'Make up your mind while I speak to you, for this is final. "'After I have finished speaking, I have closed the subject, and I won't reopen it. "'Understand that. "'You can leave here for a few days. "'What you say you have brought here, if you choose. "'You can take it away at once, if you choose. "'In case you choose to leave it here, I can do this for you. "'I can replace this matter on its old footing, "'and I can go so far besides as to give you a written undertaking "'that this man Bagnet shall never be troubled in any way "'until you have been proceeded against to the utmost, "'that your means shall be exhausted before the creditor looks to his. "'This is, in fact, all but freeing him. "'Have you decided?' "'The trooper puts his hand into his breast, "'and answers with a long breath, "'I must do it, sir.' So Mr. Tulkinghorn, putting on his spectacles, sits down and writes the undertaking, which he slowly reads and explains to Bagnet, who has all this time been staring at the ceiling, and who puts his hand on his bald head again, under this new verbal shower-bath, and seems exceedingly in need of the old girl through whom to express his sentiments. The trooper then takes from his breast-pocket a folded paper, which he lays with an unwilling hand at the lawyer's elbow. "'Tis only a letter of instruction, sir, the last I ever had from him.' "'Look at a millstone, Mr. George, for some change in its expression, and you will find it quite as soon as in the face of Mr. Tulkinghorn when he opens and reads the letter. He refolds it and lays it in his desk with a countenance as unperturbable as death. Nor has he anything more to say or do but to nod once in the same frigid and discourteous manner, and to say briefly, "'You can go. Show these men out there.' Being shown out, they repair to Mr. Bagnet's residence to dine. 
boiled beef and greens constitute the day's variety on the former repast of boiled pork and greens, and Mrs. Bagnet serves out the meal in the same way, and seasons it with the best of temper, being that rare sort of old girl, that she receives good to her arms without a hint that it might be better, and catches light from any little spot of darkness near her. The spot on this occasion is the darkened brow of Mr. George. He is unusually thoughtful and depressed. At first Mrs. Bagnet trusts to the combined endearments of Quebec and Malta to restore him, but finding those young ladies sensible that their existing bluffy is not the bluffy of their usual frolicsome acquaintance, she winks off the light infantry, and leaves him to deploy at leisure on the open ground of the domestic hearth. But he does not. He remains in close order, clouded and depressed. During the lengthy cleaning-up and patterning process, when he and Mr. Bagnet are supplied with their pipes, he is no better than he was at dinner. He forgets to smoke, looks at the fire and ponders, lets his pipe out, fills the breast of Mr. Bagnet with perturbation and dismay, by showing that he has no enjoyment of tobacco. Therefore, when Mrs. Bagnet at last appears, rosy from the invigorating pail, and sits down to her work, Mr. Bagnet growls, "'Old girl!' and winks munitions to her to find out what's the matter." "'Why, George,' says Mrs. Bagnet, quietly threading her needle, "'how low you are!' "'Am I? Not good company? Well, I, I'm afraid I'm not.' "'He ain't at all like Bluffy, mother,' cries little Malta. "'Because he ain't well, I think, mother,' adds Quebec. "'Sure, that's a bad sign, not to be like Bluffy, too.' returns the trooper, kissing the young damsels. But it's true. With a sigh. True, I'm afraid. These little ones are always right. George, says Mrs. Bagnet, working busily, if I thought you cross enough to think of anything that a shrill old soldier's wife, who could have bitten her tongue off afterwards, and ought to have done it almost, said this morning, I don't know what, I shouldn't say to you now. "'My kind soul of a darling,' returns the trooper, "'not a morsel of it. "'Because, really and truly, George, "'what I said, I meant to say, "'was that I trusted Lignum to you, "'and was sure you'd bring him through it. "'And you have brought him through it, noble.' "'Thank ye, my dear,' says George. "'I'm glad of your good opinion.' "'In giving Mrs. Bagnet's hand, "'with her work in it, a friendly shake, for she took her seat beside him, the trooper's attention is attracted to her face. After looking at it for a little while, as she plies her needle, he looks to young Woolwich, sitting on his stool in the corner, and beckons that fifer to him. "'See there, my boy,' says George, very gently smoothing the mother's hair with his hand. "'There's a good loving forehead for you. All bright, with love of you, my boy.' A little touched by the sun and the weather, through following your father about, and taking care of you, but as fresh and wholesome as a ripe apple on a tree. Mr. Bagnet's face expresses, so far as in its wooden material lies, the highest approbation and acquiescence. "'The time will come, my boy,' pursues the trooper, "'when this hair of your mother's will be grey.' and his forehead all crossed and recrossed with wrinkles, 
and a fine old lady she'll be then. Take care, while you are young, that you can think in those days. I never whitened a hair of her dear head. I never marked a sorrowful line in her face. For of all the many things that you can think of, when you are a man, you had better have that by you, Woolwich. Mr. George concludes by rising from his chair, seating the boy beside his mother in it, and saying, with something of a hurry about him, that he'll smoke his pipe in the street a bit. End of chapter 34《But this was not the effect of time, so much as of the change in all my habits, made by the helplessness and inaction of a sick-room. Before I had been confined to it many days, everything else seemed to have retired into a remote distance, where there was little or no separation between the various stages of my life, which had been really divided by years. In falling ill, I seemed to have crossed a dark lake, and to have left all my experiences mingled together by the great distance on the healthy shore my housekeeping duties though at first it caused me great anxiety to think that they were unperformed were soon as far off as the oldest of the old duties at greenleaf or the summer afternoons when i went home from school with my portfolio under my arm and my childish shadow at my side to my godmother's house i had never known before how short life really was and into how small a space the mind could put it. While I was very ill, the way in which these divisions of time became confused with one another distressed my mind exceedingly. At once a child, an elder girl, and the little woman I had been so happy as, I was not only oppressed by cares and difficulties, adapted to each station, but by the great perplexity of endlessly trying to reconcile them. I suppose that few who have not been in such a condition can quite understand what I mean, or what painful unrest arose from this source. For the same reason, I am almost afraid to hint at that time in my disorder. It seemed one long night, but I believe there were both nights and days in it, when I laboured up colossal staircases, ever striving to reach the top and ever turned as i have seen a worm in a garden path by some obstruction and labouring again i knew perfectly at intervals and i think vaguely at most times that i was in my bed and i talked with charlie and felt her touch and knew her very well yet i would find myself complaining oh more of these never-ending stairs charlie more and more piled up to the sky i think and labouring on again. Dare I hint at that worst time when, strung together somewhere in great black space, there was a flaming necklace, or, or ring, or starry circle of some kind, of which I was one of the beads, and when my only prayer was to be taken off from the rest, and when it was such inexplicable agony and misery to be a part of the dreadful thing? 
perhaps the less I say of these sick experiences, the less tedious and the more intelligible I shall be. I do not recall them to make others unhappy, or because I am now the least unhappy in remembering them. It may be that, if we knew more of such strange afflictions, we might be the better able to alleviate their intensity. The repose that succeeded, the long delicious sleep, the blissful rest, when in my weakness I was too calm to have any care for myself, and could have heard, or so I think now, that I was dying, with no other emotion than with a pitying love for those I left behind, this state can be perhaps more widely understood. I was in this state when I first shrunk from the light, as it twinkled on me once more, and knew with a boundless joy, for which no words are rapturous enough, that I should see again. I had heard my Ada crying at the door, day and night. I had heard her calling to me that I was cruel, and did not love her. I had heard her praying and imploring to be let in, to nurse and comfort me, and to leave my bedside no more. But I had only said, when I could speak, "'Never, my sweet girl, never!' And I had over and over again reminded Charlie that she was to keep my darling from the room, whether I lived or died. Charlie had been true to me in that time of need, and with her little hand and her great heart had kept the door fast. But now, my sight strengthening, and the glorious light coming every day more fully and brightly on me, I could read the letters that my dear wrote to me every morning and evening, and could put them to my lips and lay my cheek upon them with no fear of hurting her. I could see my little maid, so tender and so careful, going about the two rooms setting everything in order, and speaking cheerfully to Ada from the open window again. I could understand the stillness in the house, and the thoughtfulness it expressed on the part of all those who had always been so good to me. I could weep in the exquisite felicity of my heart, and be as happy in my weakness as ever I had been in my strength. By and by my strength began to be restored. Instead of lying, with so strange a calmness, watching what was done for me, as if it were done for someone else whom I was quietly sorry for, I helped it a little, and so on to a little more, and much more, until I became useful to myself and interested, and attached to life again. How well I remember the pleasant afternoon when I was raised in bed with pillows for the first time to enjoy a great tea-drinking with Charlie. The little creature, sent into the world surely to minister to the weak and sick, was so happy and so busy and stopped so often in her preparations to lay her head upon my bosom and fondle me and cry with joyful tears she was so glad she was so glad that i was obliged to say charlie if you go on in this way i must lie down again my darling for i am weaker than i thought i was so charlie became as quiet as a mouse and took her bright face here and there, across and across the two rooms, out of the shade into the divine sunshine, and out of the sunshine into the shade, while I watched her peacefully. When all her preparations were concluded, and the pretty tea-table, with its little delicacies to tempt me, and its white cloth, and its flowers, and everything so lovingly and beautifully arranged for me by Ada downstairs, was ready at the bedside, 
I felt sure I was steady enough to say something to Charlie that was not new to my thoughts. First I complimented Charlie on the room, and indeed it was so fresh and airy, so spotless and neat, that I could scarcely believe I had been lying there so long. This delighted Charlie, and her face was brighter than before. "'Yet, Charlie,' said I, looking round, "'I miss something, surely, that I am accustomed to.' Poor little Charlie looked round, too, and pretended to shake her head as if there was nothing absent. "'Are the pictures all as they used to be?' I asked her. "'Every one of them, miss,' said Charlie. "'And the furniture, Charlie?' "'Except where I've moved it about to make more room, miss.' "'And yet,' said I, "'I missed some familiar object. "'Ah, I know what it is, Charlie. "'It's the looking-glass.' Charlie got up from the table, making as if she had forgotten something, and went into the next room, and I heard her sob there. I had thought of this very often. I was now certain of it. I could thank God that it was not a shock to me now. I called Charlie back, and when she came, at first pretending to smile, but as she drew nearer to me, looking grieved, I took her in my arms and said, "'It matters very little, Charlie. I hope I can do without my old face very well.' I was presently so far advanced as to be able to sit up in a great chair, and even giddily to walk into the adjoining room, leaning on Charlie. The mirror was gone from its usual place in that room, too, but what I had to bear was none the harder to bear for that. My guardian had throughout been earnest to visit me, and there was now no good reason why I should deny myself that happiness. He came one morning, and when he first came in, could only hold me in his embrace, and say, "'My dear, dear girl!' I had long known, who could know better, what a deep fountain of affection and generosity his heart was, and was it not worth my trivial suffering and change to fill such a place in it? Oh, yes, I thought, he has seen me, and he loves me better than he did. He has seen me, and is even fonder of me than he was before. And what have I to mourn for? He sat down by me on the sofa, supporting me with his arm. For a little while he sat with his hand over his face, but when he removed it, fell into his usual manner. There never can have been, there never can be, a pleasanter manner. My little woman, said he, what a sad time this has been. Such an inflexible little woman, too, through all. Only for the best, guardian, said I. "'For the best,' he repeated tenderly, "'of course, for the best. "'But here have Ada and I been perfectly forlorn and miserable. "'Here has your friend Caddy been coming and going late and early. "'Here has every one about the house been utterly lost and dejected. "'Here has even poor Rick been writing to me, too, in his anxiety for you.' I had read of Caddy in Ada's letters, but not of Richard. I told him so. "'Why, no, my dear,' he replied. 
I have thought it better not to mention it to her. "'And you speak of his writing to you?' said I, repeating his emphasis. "'As if it were not natural for him to do so, guardian, as if he could write to a better friend.' "'He thinks he could, my love,' returned my guardian, "'and to many a better.' The truth is, he wrote to me under a sort of protest, while unable to write to you with any hope of an answer, wrote coldly, haughtily, distantly, resentfully. Well, dearest little woman, we must look forbearingly on it. He is not to blame. Jarndyce and Jarndyce has warped him out of himself and perverted me in his eyes. I have known it do as bad deeds and worse many a time. If two angels could be concerned in it, I believe it would change their nature. It has not changed yours, guardian. Oh, yes, it has, my dear, he said laughingly. It has made the south wind easterly. I don't know how often. Rick mistrusts and suspects me goes to lawyers, and is taught to mistrust and suspect me. Here's I have conflicting interests, claims clashing against his, and what not. Whereas heaven knows, that if I could get out of the mountains of wiglomeration, on which my unfortunate name has been so long bestowed, which I can't, or could level them by the extinction of my own original right, which I can't either, and no human power ever can, anyhow, I believe, to such a pass have we got. I would do it this hour. I would rather restore to poor Rick his proper nature, than be endowed with all the money that dead suitors, broken heart and soul upon the wheel of chancery, have left unclaimed with the accountant-general." That's money enough, my dear, to be cast into a pyramid, in memory of Chancery's transcendent wickedness. "'Is it possible, guardian,' I asked, amazed, "'that Richard can be suspicious of you?' "'Ah, my love, my love,' he said, "'it is in the subtle poison of such abuses to breed such diseases.' His blood is infected, and objects lose their natural aspects in his sight. It is not his fault. But it is a terrible misfortune, guardian. It is a terrible misfortune, little woman, to be ever drawn within the influences of Jarndyce and Jarndyce. I know none greater. By little and little he has been induced to trust in that rotten reed, and it communicates some portion of its rottenness to everything around him. But again I say with all my soul, we must be patient with poor Rick, and not blame him. What a troop of fine fresh hearts like this have I seen in my time, turned by the same means. I could not help expressing something of my wonder and regret at his benevolent, disinterested intentions had prospered so little. "'We must not say so, Dame Durden,' he cheerfully replied. "'Ada is the happier, I hope, and that is much. 
i did think that i and both these young creatures might be friends instead of distrustful foes and that we might so far counteract the suit and prove too strong for it but it was too much to expect jarndyce and jarndyce was the curtain of rick's cradle but guardian may we not hope that a little experience will teach him what a false and wretched thing it is we will hope so my esther said mr jarndyce and that it may not teach him so too late in any case we must not be hard on him there are not many grown and matured men living while we speak good men too who if they were thrown into this same court as suitors would not be vitally changed and depreciated within three years within two within one how can we stand amazed at poor rick a young man so unfortunate here he fell into a lower tone as if he were thinking aloud cannot at first believe who could the chancery is what it is he looks to it flushed and fitfully to do something with his interests and bring them to some settlement it procrastinates disappoints tries tortures him wears out his sanguine hopes and patience thread by thread but he still looks to it and hankers after it and finds his whole world treacherous and hollow oh, well 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 enough of this my dear he had supported me as at first all this time and his tenderness was so precious to me that i leaned my head upon his shoulder and loved him as if he had been my father i resolved in my own mind in this little pause by some means to see richard when i grew strong and try to set him right there are better subjects than these said my guardian for such a joyful time was the time of our dear girl's recovery and i had a commission to broach one of them as soon as i should begin to talk when shall ada come to see you my love i had been thinking of that too a little in connection with the absent mirrors but not much for i knew my loving girl would be changed by no change in my looks dear guardian said i as i have shut her out so long though indeed indeed she is like the light to me i know it well dame durden well he was so good his touch expressed such endearing compassion and affection and the tone of his voice carried such comfort into my heart that i stopped for a little while quite unable to go on yes yes you are tired said he rest a little as i have kept ada out so long i began afresh after a short while i think i should like to have my own way a little longer guardian it would be best to be away from here before i see her if charlie and i were to go to some country lodging as soon as i can move and if i had a week there in which to grow stronger and to be revived by the sweet air and to look forward to the happiness of having ada with me again i think it would be better for us i hope it was not a poor thing in me to wish to be a little more used to my altered self before i met the eyes of the dear girl i longed so ardently to see but it is the truth i did he understood me i was sure but i was not afraid of that 
if it were a poor thing, I knew he would pass it over. "'Our spoilt little woman,' said my guardian, "'shall have her own way even in her inflexibility, though at the price I know of tears downstairs. And see here, here is Boythorn, heart of chivalry, breathing such ferocious vows as never were breathed on paper before.' that if you don't go and occupy his whole house he having already turned out of it expressly for that purpose by heaven and by earth he'll pull it down and not leave one brick standing on another and my guardian put a letter in my hand without any ordinary beginning such as my dear jarndyce but rushing at once into the words i swear if miss summerson do not come down and take possession of my house which i vacate for her this day at one o'clock p m and then with the utmost seriousness and in the most emphatic terms going on to make the extraordinary declaration he had quoted we did not appreciate the right of the less for laughing heartily over it and we settled that i should send him a letter of thanks on the morrow and accept his offer it was a most agreeable one to me for all the places i could have thought of i should have liked to go to none so well as chesney wold now little housewife said my guardian looking at his watch i was strictly timed before i came upstairs for you must not be tired too soon and my time has waned away to the last minute i have one other petition little miss flight hearing a rumour that you were ill made nothing of walking down here twenty miles poor soul in a pair of dancing shoes to inquire it was heaven's mercy we were at home or she would have walked back again the old conspiracy to make me happy everybody seemed to be in it now pet said my guardian if it would not be irksome to you to admit the harmless little creature one afternoon before you save boythorn's otherwise devoted house from demolition i believe you would make her prouder and better pleased with herself than i though my eminent name is jarndyce could do in a lifetime i have no doubt he knew there would be something in the simple image of the poor afflicted creature that would fall like a gentle lesson on my mind at that time i felt it as he spoke to me i could not tell him heartily enough how ready i was to receive her i had always pitied her never so much as now i had always been glad of my little power to soothe her under her calamity but never never half so glad before we arranged a time for miss flight to come out by the coach and share my early dinner when my guardian left me i turned my face away upon my couch and prayed to be forgiven if i surrounded by such blessings had magnified to myself the little trial that i had to undergo the childish prayer of that old birthday when i had aspired to be industrious contented and true-hearted and to do good to some one and win some love to myself if i could came back into my mind with a reproachful sense of all the happiness i had since enjoyed and all the affectionate hearts that had been turned towards me if i were weak now what had i profited by those mercies i repeated the old childish prayer in its old childish words and found that its old peace had not departed from it 
My guardian now came every day. In a week or so more, I could walk about our rooms, and hold long talks with Ada from behind the window-curtain. Yet I never saw her, for I had not as yet the courage to look at the dear face, though I could have done so easily without her seeing me. On the appointed day Miss Flight arrived. The poor little creature ran into my room, quite forgetful of her usual dignity, and crying from her very heart of hearts, "'My dear Fitzjarndyce,' fell upon my neck and kissed me twenty times. "'Dear me,' said she, putting her hand into her reticule, "'I have nothing here but documents, my dear Fitzjarndyce. I must borrow a pocket-handkerchief.' Charlie gave her one, and the good creature certainly made use of it, for she held it to her eyes with both hands, and sat so, shedding tears for the next ten minutes. "'With pleasure, my dear Fitzjarndyce,' she was careful to explain, "'not the least pain. Pleasure to see you well again. Pleasure at having the honour of being admitted to see you. I am so much fonder of you, my love, than of the Chancellor, though I do attend court regularly. By the by, my dear, mentioning pocket-handkerchiefs. Miss Flight here looked at Charlie, who had been to meet her at the place where the coach stopped. Charlie glanced at me, and looked unwilling to pursue the suggestion. "'Very right,' said Miss Flight. "'Very correct, truly.' highly indiscreet of me to mention it but my dear miss fitzjarndyce i am afraid i am at times between ourselves you wouldn't think it a little uh, rambling you know said miss flite touching her forehead nothing more what were you going to tell me said i smiling for i saw she wanted to go on you have roused my curiosity and now you must gratify it Miss Flight looked at Charlie for advice in this important crisis, who said, "'If you please, ma'am, you'd better tell then.' And therein gratified Miss Flight beyond measure. "'So sagacious, our young friend,' said she to me in her mysterious way. "'Diminutive, but very sagacious. "'Well, my dear, it's a pretty anecdote, nothing more.' still i think it charming who should follow us down the road from the coach my dear but a poor person in a very ungenteel bonnet jenny if you please miss said charley just so miss flight acquiesced with the greatest suavity jenny yes and what does she tell our young friend but there has been a lady with a veil inquiring at her cottage after my dear fitzjarndyce's health and taking a handkerchief away with her as a little keepsake merely because it was my amiable fitzjarndyce's now you know so very prepossessing in the lady with the veil if you please miss said charley to whom i looked in some astonishment "'Jenny says that when her baby died, you left a handkerchief there, "'and that she put it away and kept it with the baby's little things. "'I think, if you please, partly because it was yours, miss, "'and partly because it had covered the baby.' "'Diminutive,' 
whispered Miss Flight, making a variety of motions about her own forehead to express intellect in Charlie. "'But exceedingly sagacious. And so, dear, my love, she is clearer than any counsel I ever heard.' "'Yes, Charlie,' I returned. "'I remember it. Well?' "'Well, Miss,' said Charlie, "'and that's the handkerchief the lady took.' and jenny wants you to know that she wouldn't have made away with it herself for a heap of money but that the lady took it and left some money instead jenny don't know her at all if you please miss why who can she be said i my love miss flight suggested advancing her lips to my ear with her most mysterious look in my opinion don't mention this to our diminutive friend she's the lord chancellor's wife he is married you know and i understand she leads him a terrible life throws his lordship's papers into the fire my dear if he won't pay the jeweller i did not think very much about this lady then for i had an impression that it might be caddy besides my attention was diverted by my visitor who was cold after her ride, and looked hungry, and who, our dinner being brought in, required some little assistance in arraying herself with great satisfaction in a pitiable old scarf and a much-worn, often-mended pair of gloves, which she had brought down in a paper parcel. I had to preside, too, over the entertainment, consisting of a dish of fish, a roast fowl, a sweetbread, vegetables, pudding, and Madeira and it was so pleasant to see how she enjoyed it, and with what state and ceremony she did honour to it, that I was soon thinking of nothing else. When we had finished, and had our little dessert before us, embellished by the hands of my dear, who would yield the superintendence of everything, prepared for me to no one, Miss Flight was so very chatty and happy that I thought I would lead her to her own history, as she was always pleased to talk about herself, I began by saying— "'You have attended on the Lord Chancellor many years, Miss Flight.' "'Oh, many, many, many years, my dear. "'But I expect a judgment shortly.' "'There was an anxiety, even in her hopefulness, "'that made me doubtful if I had done right in approaching the subject. "'I thought I would say no more about it.' "'My father expected a judgment,' said Miss Flight. "'My brother, my sister.' they all expected a judgment the same that i expect they are all yes dead of course my dear said she as i saw she would go on i thought it best to try to be serviceable to her by meeting the theme rather than avoiding it would it not be wiser said i to expect this judgment no more why my dear she answered promptly "'Of course it would.' "'And to attend the court no more?' "'Equally, of course,' said she. "'Very wearing to be always in expectation of what never comes, my dear Fitzjarndyce. "'Wearing, I assure you, to the bone.' She slightly showed me her arm, and it was fearfully thin indeed. "'But, my dear,' she went on in her mysterious way, "'there's a dreadful attraction in the place.' "'Don't mention it to our diminutive friend when she comes in, or it may frighten her,' 
with good reason, there's a cruel attraction in the place. You can't leave it, and you must expect. I tried to assure her that it was not so. She heard me patiently and smilingly, but was ready with her own answer. Aye, aye, aye. You think so, because I'm a little rambling. Very absurd to be a little rambling, is it not? Very confusing, too. To the head, I find it so. But, my dear, I have been there many years, and I have noticed. It's the mace and seal upon the table. What could they do, did she think? I mildly asked her. Draw, returned Miss Flight. Draw people on, my dear. Draw peace out of them. Sense out of them. Good looks out of them. Good qualities out of them. I have felt them even drawing my rest away in the night. Cold and glittering devils. She tapped me several times upon the arm, and nodded good-humouredly, as if she were anxious I should understand that I had no cause to fear her, though she spoke so gloomily, and confided these awful secrets to me. "'Let me see,' said she. "'I'll tell you my own case, before they ever drew me, before I had ever seen them. What was it I used to do? Tambourine playing? No.' Uh, uh, tambour work uh, i and my sister worked at tambour work our father and our brother had a builder's business we all lived together very respectably my dear first our father was drawn slowly home was drawn with him in a few years he was a fierce sour angry bankrupt without a kind word or a kind look for any one he had been so different, Fitzjarndyce. He was drawn to a debtor's prison. There he died. Then our brother was drawn, swiftly, to drunkenness and rags and death. And my sister was drawn, shh, never ask to what. Then I was ill and in misery, and heard, as I had often heard before, that this was all the work of Chancery. When I got better, I went to look at the monster, and then I found out how it was, and I was drawn to stay there. Having got over her own short narrative, in the delivery of which she had spoken in a low, strained voice, as if the shock were fresh upon her, she gradually resumed her usual air of amiable importance. "'You don't quite credit me, my dear. Well, well, you will some day. I am a little rambling, but I have noticed. I've seen many new faces come, unsuspicious, within the influence of the mace and seal in these many years. As my father's came there, as my brother's, as my sister's, as my own, I hear conversation Kenge and the rest of them say to the new faces, Here's little Miss Flight. Oh, you are new here, and you must come and be presented to little Miss Flight. Very good. Proud, I am sure, to have the honour, and we all laugh. But Fitzjarndyce, I know what will happen. I know far better than they do, when the attraction has begun. I know the signs, my dear. 
I saw them begin in Gridley, and I saw them end. Fitz Jarndyce, my love, speaking low again, I saw them beginning in our friend, the ward in Jarndyce. Let some one hold him back, or he'll be drawn to ruin. She looked at me in silence for some moments, with her face gradually softening into a smile. Seeming to fear that she had been too gloomy, and seeming also to lose the connection in her mind, she said politely, as she sipped her glass of wine, "'Yes, my dear, as I was saying, I expect a judgment shortly. Then I shall release my birds, you know, and confer estates.' I was much impressed by her allusion to Richard, and by the sad meaning, so sadly illustrated in her poor pinched form, that made its way through all her incoherence. But happily for her, she was quite complacent again now, and beamed with nods and smiles. "'Oh, but, my dear,' she said gaily, reaching another hand to put it upon mine, "'you have not congratulated me on my physician. Positively not once yet.' I was obliged to confess that I did not quite know what she meant. "'My physician!' "'Mr. Woodcourt, my dear, who was so exceedingly attentive to me, though his services were rendered quite gratuitously, until the day of judgment—I mean, the judgment that will dissolve the spell upon me of the mace and seal.' "'Mr. Woodcourt is so far away now,' said I, "'that I thought the time for such congratulation was past, Miss Flight.' "'But my child,' she returned, "'Is it possible that you don't know what has happened?' "'No,' said I. "'Not what everybody has been talking of, my beloved Fitzjarndyce. "'No,' said I. "'You forget how long I've been here.' "'True, my dear, for the moment, true. "'I blame myself. "'But my memory has been drawn out of me.' with everything else by what I mentioned. Very strong influence, is it not? Well, my dear, there has been a terrible shipwreck over in those East Indian seas. Mr. Woodcourt shipwrecked. Don't be agitated, my dear. He is safe. An awful scene. Death in all shapes. Hundreds of dead and dying. Fire, storm, and darkness, numbers of the drowning thrown upon a rock. There, and through it all, my dear physician was a hero. Calm and brave through everything, saved many lives, never complained in hunger and thirst, wrapped naked people in his spare clothes, took the lead showed them what to do, governed them, tended the sick, buried the dead, and brought the poor survivors safely off at last. My dear, the poor, emaciated creatures all but worshipped him. They fell down at his feet when they got to the land and blessed him. The whole country rings with it. Stay. Where's my bag of documents? I've got it there and you shall read it you shall read it and i did read all the noble history though very slowly and imperfectly then for my eyes were so dimmed that i could not see the words 
and I cried so much that I was many times obliged to lay down the long account she had cut out of the newspaper. I felt so triumphant ever to have known the man who had done such generous and gallant deeds. I felt such glowing exultation in his renown. I so admired and loved what he had done, that I envied the storm-worn people who had fallen at his feet and blessed him as their preserver. I could myself have kneeled down then, so far away, and blessed him in my rapture, that he should be so truly good and brave. I felt that no one, mother, sister, wife, could honour him more than I. I did, indeed. My poor little visitor made me a present of the account, and when, as the evening began to close in, she rose to take her leave, lest she should miss the coach by which she was to return. She was still full of the shipwreck, which I had not yet sufficiently composed myself to understand in all its details. "'My dear,' said she, as she carefully folded up her scarf and gloves, "'my brave physician ought to have a title bestowed upon him, and no doubt he will. You are of that opinion?' "'That he well deserved one, yes. That he would ever have one, no.' "'Why not, Fitz Jarndyce?' she asked rather sharply. I said it was not the custom in England to confer titles on men distinguished by peaceful services, however good and great, unless occasionally when they consisted of the accumulation of some very large amount of money. "'Why, good gracious!' said Miss Flight. "'How can you say that?' "'Surely, you know, my dear, that all the greatest ornaments of England in knowledge, imagination, active humanity, and improvement of every sort are added to its nobility. Look round you, my dear, and consider. You must be rambling a little now, I think, if you don't know that this is the great reason why titles will always last in the land.' "'I am afraid she believed what she said.' for there were moments when she was very mad indeed. And now I must part with the little secret I have thus far tried to keep. I had thought, sometimes, that Mr. Woodcourt loved me, and that if he had been richer, he would perhaps have told me that he loved me before he went away. I had thought, sometimes, that if he had done so, I should have been glad of it. But how much better it was now that this had never happened! What should I have suffered if I had had to write to him and tell him that the poor face he had known as mine was quite gone from me, and that I freely released him from his bondage to one whom he had never seen? Oh, it was so much better as it was. With a great pang mercifully spared me, I could take back to my heart my childish prayer to be all he had so brightly shown himself, and there was nothing to be undone no chain for me to break or for him to drag, and I could go, please God, my lowly way along the path of duty, and he could go his nobler way upon its broader road, and though we were apart upon the journey, I might aspire to meet him, unselfishly, innocently, better far than he had thought me when I found some favour in his eyes at the journey's end. End of chapter 35
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.